snatched the thing from the hearth and crept shaking to my bedroom, where I read it and reread it, and wept and laughed and trembled with a horror which at times assails me yet. This is the thing that troubles me, for I cannot forget Carcosa, where black stars hang in the heavens, where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon, where the twin suns sink into the lake of Harley, and my mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask. I pray God will curse the writer, as the writer has cursed the world with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth, a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. You're listening to Drawn to the Flame. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hello, Peter. Do you curse the writer of The King in Yellow? (laughs) I do. Every day. Especially when I accidentally call The King in Yellow Hasta. (laughs) Today, we are joined by... Uh, Hi, it's me. I'm Matt Newman. (laughs) Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. How you guys doing? Very well, thank you. It was a very ominous intro there, you you did, Frank. (laughs) I was was going to change... Curse the writer to curse the developer. Right. <laughs> but, uh, I, I thought listeners would get that. Listener, if you don't know, Matt Newman is the lead developer of Arkham Horror, the card game, and we are absolutely delighted to have him on the cast. We did one of these episodes at the end of Dunwich, where we spoke to Matt about the player cards, about the scenarios, a kind of director's commentary, if you want. And yeah, we're fantastically excited to have Matt on the cast again talking to us about the path to Carcosa. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Hopefully everyone has finished playing the path to Carcosa. If you haven't, go and do it because it's a great cycle. We're going to talk quite extensively about the narrative. We're going to talk as much as we can about it while we've got Matt on the podcast. So uh, (laughs) there'll be heavy spoilers. So yeah, if you want to get the most out of it, make sure you've played it all first and then come and listen to us. Preferably straight as soon as you finish playing the last scenario and come to us. And it's really uh, an experience that is so sort of informed by the decisions you make as you play. So if you can avoid hearing other people talking about it and experiencing it at first hand, I heartily recommend that. The other thing worth noting is that Matt did a fantastic interview with the Mythos Busters. I think that's another podcast. I'm not quite sure if that's the right name. Something I've I've not heard of them. (laughs) Okay, but supposedly there's an interview there and it's definitely worth checking out as well we might cover some of the same ground in this interview if you're a listener to both podcasts lucky you you get to hear things twice and otherwise hopefully we'll (laughs) we'll find something that you've not heard already so yeah so um matt before we go any further yeah during this cycle it felt like we were seeing the game really develop from being a pretty streamlined thing to having things like um, investigators turning up in replacement before they were out, um, replacement mm-hmm. cards themselves coming out, the diversity within the Carcosa deluxe box in terms of deck building rules. So it mm-hmm. made Dunwich and Core seem pretty restrained in comparison. How do you feel the state of the game is at the moment? And how did you feel with this kind of flourishing of new investigators and new rules and things like that? Yeah, good question. So for um I think for the for the corset in Dunwich, um uh it was a little bit more restrained on purpose. Um you know, the game was still very, very young and it was early in the game's development, so for Dunwich especially, I I mean the game hadn't even come out 
I, I think I mentioned that the last time I was on the show. Uh, the yeah, game hadn't yeah. even come out when I started working on Dunwich, so I kind of just defaulted to um, how how the core was developed and um, continue along those same lines. For Carcosa, we we wanted to really kind of build upon what we had, not really stretch it to its seams, but just kind of build upon that foundation and do some fun things that were different from the previous cycle. Yeah, it, it felt like with Carcosa there was this real attempt at, at depth rather than breadth, at really immersive storytelling where it, it felt really consequential as an investigator what you decided to do and not do. And yeah, that felt like a sort of a, a step change in intensity, which I mm. really To enjoyed. me it felt more, it was almost personal because it was things happy, happening to my investigator. We, we weren't trying to just save the world. It yeah, was, definitely. Yeah, something intruded into my mind, <laughs> and I was yeah. fighting that. That that stems, I think, a bit f- uh, more from the you know the the basis of where the narrative comes from, um, because all of the stories in the King in Yellow are a bit more personal, and uh, the stakes are more personal. You know. Yeah. So even though there's this this galaxy shattering <laughs> old one behind the scenes, uh, it's about how it affects the people in the stories. Yeah, yeah, and and Haster as as an ancient one. I think his uh, his powers are more personal in scope. You know, he he grows in strength as, or, or I like to think that he grows in strength as as investigators are affected by his madness. So that it only makes sense that the story built up around Haster would be a bit more personal in scope. And I should probably note at this point as well that we're Peter and I are going to try as best we can to avoid simply comparing Carcosa to Dunwich all the way through the interview because I think it's very easy to say well you know in the third scenario in Dunwich we did this but in Echoes of the Past we did that or whatever probably we should just get that out of our system how much was the design of Carcosa influenced by an aim to not be Dunwich? I would say only a little bit I mean there there was there's always I think with every campaign going to be an aim to not make it the same as the as the previous campaigns uh, because I want every campaign to really stand on its own two legs and feel different in terms yeah. of mechanics, but also in terms of tone. But uh, at the same time, like the the decisions that we made in Carcosa weren't made just to be different. You know, they were made with a a very specific purpose in mind. And it was just it was just convenient then that it, it happened to feel fairly different. Is that that's, right? Yeah, yeah. Or or just a a product of the fact that you know Dunwich was built with certain tones and a certain narrative in mind and Carcosa had a different narrative and that creates two very different products in the end you know yeah yeah one of the things that I I really liked about this cycle in particular and I I don't want to throw shade at other Arkham games but you can sometimes (laughs) feel that the gods the the ancient ones or the old ones whatever you want to call them they're a Mm -hmm. different flavor of end boss and that's and that's what it is and you have you fight different monsters but it's more or less window dressing. I think in this cycle, you've really managed to nail the tone of the King and Yellow stories, as well as having has to be the, the bad guy. If you see what I'm trying to say. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I hope that I hope that does come across. I, I think that's mostly a, a byproduct of the the delivery method, right? I mean, we've yeah, got, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah we we have many, many, many cards to work with in by comparison to a game like uh, like Eldritch Horror, or Arkham Horror. I mean, with, with Eldritch Horror, you've got the same board and the same mechanics whenever you play right. it. So, so by necessity, that's how it works. So you've got the luxury of 
you've got hundreds of cards and you can make your own board every time someone sits down to play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know, many hundreds of words of narrative, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, there's a, a lot of story text going on. It, it's broken down into little chunks, but you actually end up covering quite a lot of ground with, with story, which is, yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah, and I think overall there was a lot more story text in Carcosa than in Dunwich. Um, just like if you if you did a word count, you know. I, I was I, I was more interested. I was kind of hanging more on on the words of exactly what was said in the narrative. There's a few mm. points where where Frank and I had long discussions about. I think didn't we have like a twenty minute discussion about what a phantom of truth meant? Yeah, just just the, <laughs> the, the, the title of the scenario. <laughs> we were sitting mm. there chatting about it. Yeah. Exactly. I think I think the message began. What does a phantom of truth mean? And the other person's just sending back question marks in chat. <laughs> the words like you know, phantom that That's means funny. ghost. Yeah. So, anyway, we're we're straying into scenarios. Let's. Let's talk about player cards first, actually, because that's that's really most people's first point of contact with Carcosa. Sure. They open a pack and they see what they can add into their deck before they dive into a scenario. What did you want to offer the factions in this cycle? So I think in general, not just in this cycle, but you know, in general, uh, I have the philosophy that every every pack or at least every cycle should have a card for everybody. Mm-hmm. So whether that means if you're a new player and this is a card that uh, that you know is specifically good for the investigators in in that in that cycle, or maybe this is a, a card for an investigator from the core set, or a card for an investigator in in a previous cycle that you don't even own, or maybe it's a card that's just there, like a toolbox card that's just there to solve a specific problem, maybe even a problem that that comes about in that pack, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's very there's many different flavors and archetypes of players who play this game and I think every card is going to appeal to different groups so it's important that there's cards for everybody. Yeah, Peter and I have talked a fair amount now about how with 16 investigators in the game if you don't count promo investigators and replacements and things like that mm-hmm. what we're already seeing within the factions is that the way that you build decks is really determined by the investigator rather than by the faction. Uh, a Zoe deck and a Mark deck can end up looking quite different and their roles within a group can be quite different. So yeah, it's definitely. not simply all the Guardians need this card. It might be that one specific Guardian needs the Trench Knife or True Grit or whatever else it is. Yeah, I think I like I like to look at uh, deck building more from the Investigator standpoint than the Faction standpoint because really a card, like a Guardian card, uh, it's not just a Guardian card, it could also be a Skids card, you know? Yeah. Or I, I like to kind of map out who has access to any given card and see if it fits into all of them or if it fits into some of them and how it fits into them in different ways, more so than look at just a set of Guardian cards and think, all right, you know, what What are these Guardian cards trying to achieve? You know? Surely that, that, that means by the time we get to the fifth cycle, Matt, you're going to have an impossible job. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. <you> have... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And there have already been times where uh, a card has been released and uh, been... Um, what's the word, I don't know, assigned to an investigator that I, I didn't expect it to, you know? Hmm. Um, and everybody starts using it with that investigator rather than the, the ones I expected. <laughs> yeah. And that's not a bad thing. That that can sometimes be really interesting and really cool to watch. 
Yeah, well, and Armour of Arden came out and I wondered where it fitted while we've sort of been talking about Guardian. And then mm-hmm. we had our Labyrinths event and there was a Zoe player who'd spent their XP on Armour of Arden and their role was just just to soak up damage. And they were just, oh, yeah. they were going pure tank. And it was really fun to see because I'd sort of, you know, all the Guardians have high health pools anyway. Do they need even more health <laughs> turns out you can go even higher if you want to you know yeah well so. when you can cancel one damage every turn uh that basically turns your health into uh you know infinity if managed appropriately <laughs> yeah yeah it's incredible yeah you, your 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 question then is how, leveraging that infinite health into <laughs> into you know doing well uh which which is which is a fun challenge right yeah whether you just pick up all the enemies and walk around so while we're on guardian I know there's yeah. one question that the community is dying to know, and that's that <laughs> there was a rumor earlier in the cycle that the Guardian patron would be a character <laughs> called Super Frank. I don't Super know who Frank. started this rumor. It, I think it was an official leak from FFG. I'm not going to say any more about where I heard it, but yeah. And every pack that I unboxed, there was this chance that we would see the Guardian patron, aka Super Frank. Can you, Matt? on record now confirm or deny the existence of super frank <laughs> but also more generally tell us about the fact that guardians didn't get a patron yeah so that was there's there's a couple different reasons why and i'm not gonna say which one's right you'll have to use your doubt or conviction to figure it out <laughs> so either here's the branching path either there was never meant to be a guardian patron and uh it tonally doesn't you know make as much sense for there to be a person supporting them when they are the people supporting other people or there was a guardian patron and it got cut from the set for one reason or another super frank is too powerful (laughs) to find his way to the game yeah okay well i know which one i believe (laughs) i i will neither confirm nor deny either one of those theories but i will say that um over the course of playtesting it's pretty common for cards to get shifted around, moved to to future sets, or cut entirely based on how they're testing, or maybe how the art turns out, or you know, all kinds of different factors can affect the final card pool. And oftentimes, the card pool is being adjusted all the way up into um, mm. uh, just a, several weeks before uh, production. So yeah, yeah. The the other thing on a more serious note that I did think about was that. Mm-hmm. The patrons give you some kind of resource assistance depending on your faction. So they Mm -hmm. operate in a way that your faction operates. And one of the key ways that guardians can be restrained within a scenario is running out of resources because they often are fairly resource intensive, requiring getting assets in play, whether that's allies or weapons and things like that. And, And sort of one way that you can curb the power of a guardian is deprive them of resources. And if yeah. if they had an ally that made things cheaper for them, might mean that they sort of go out of control in terms of in terms of how strong they are. It's definitely one of their one of their two like primary weaknesses, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. The the other thing I think I noticed about Guardians was that rather than just getting a load of bigger and bigger weapons, this this probably applied last cycle as well. There was quite a few cards which emphasized their the protection nature of the faction. So right. stuff like the heroic rescue. Yep. And then the there's a couple of encounter and, and actually that's one of the interesting things as well, is that their encounter mitigating cards well, I let me handle this. You still draw right. the encounter card, but the guardian <laughs> deals with it instead. Right. So Yeah, there's definitely a, 
a, a sub theme or not even a sub theme, a, a dominant theme for guardians of, you know, protection, support, defense, that sort of thing. Like when, when you're building a team of investigators, the guardian is going to be the one shouldering the, the burden of saving the rest of the group, or at least that's, you know, that's the intent. Yeah. It, I think it came across really strongly. I'd be surprised if guardians aren't running one of let me handle this or maybe on the hunt as well seems to just have slid straight into decks. You know, you've got set up mm-hmm. to fight as a guardian and you re- you're ready to do that. And you, the last thing you want is rotting remains as your encounter card and <laughs> to, <laughs> to go insane. Yeah, definitely. You can really manage your own tempo with that as well. If, you, if you're sitting there, uh, you know, or tooled up with all your weapons and stuff, but you haven't got anything to fight, you're sort of, you, you're wasting time a bit because you can't use those actions as productively. So being able right. to just summon up a monster and then re- you've got a draw and encounter card anyway, <laughs> it might as well be something you can kill. Yeah, that's actually, that, that card is one of those perfect examples of a card where I, I looked at the investigators who had access to it and I looked at the investigators who would enjoy having a card like that in their deck and it slots perfectly in with, with several of them, right? So, like, yeah. Zoe wants to engage enemies because she gets money off of it anyway. And if she gets a, a one-health enemy and she has her cross out, she can just kill it. Roland wants enemies because he can discover clues by killing them. Mm, yeah. So there, there are certain Guardian decks that... Uh, it's not so much that they'd rather have an enemy, so much as they actually want to have an enemy. They're They're proactively hunting these creatures down. Yeah, between Roland's replacement cards art student and on the hunt mm. you can almost avoid investigating normally now it's it's really incredibly fun way to play that he's just wanting to find enemies to get clues out of and when he doesn't find enemies <laughs> he plays art students and gets clues that way it's really yeah i've just been playing as roland and really enjoyed that it's it's really exciting to see <laughs> the, the other guardian card i really wanted to mention was i'll see you in hell which is <laughs> That's, uh, first one up, of my it, favorites <laughs> uh, yeah well it's part of my favorite cycle of cards which is cards that have like action movie quotes <laughs> <laughs> as the name of the card <laughs> yeah but but i think that's interesting because it we've seen um uh, calvin right now as well right and it's almost like physical trauma when we started playing the game it was something you never wanted to have it was terrible was like avoid avoid trauma of any sort at all yeah, costs. Yeah. <laughs> but now Calvin and, and cards like this, it, your health pool is it's almost like a resource you can use over the course of the campaign. Do you say that's fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I mean, there are also some investigators who, when you when you have nine health and access to cards that boost your health pool, like True Grit and the, the Armor of Arden, even starting with four or five physical trauma is something that you can overcome. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> You'd much prefer to start with that than two, two mental trauma. Right. Yeah. Sanity. Yeah. And I, I've definitely heard of people playing "I'll See You in Hell" just to avoid a mental trauma. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to rogues. I was about, I was about to say exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> so we can double down. If you say it and I say it, we will have both. We have upped the stakes and both oh. moved on to rogue. That doesn't really work. But <laughs> yeah, the rogue. Rogue. We felt like there was an upping of the gambling stakes across Mm -hmm. the faction i think for me best conjured up by watch this this idea that rogues can get resources through a gamble Mm -hmm. watch this is one of my favorite cards in the cycle i think nice that's awesome it's probably it's one of my favorite art pieces in the cycle because it's just so over the top (laughs) yeah like the card you know why why get resources (laughs) normally when you can you can kind of actually shift them into the middle of the table and say, I'm betting these three on this test. Let's do this. 
So there, there was there was gambling, but there was also more evasion synergy. Was where did you want to go with that? What's so I I definitely there was a um, an intentional move in both Rogue and Survivor to include uh, some evasion heavy or evasion focused cards, trying to make evasion a bit more valuable, not in terms of uh, not not just in terms of what it does to the enemy, but also like what it does for you. Mm, yeah. And I think Rogues and Survivors both have a different approach there, too. And I think that's going to get fleshed out more over time. The goal is eventually to have, you know, decks where uh, you can have a Rogue or a Survivor who just never fights. They just leave all the enemies on the board, and they're able to still successfully evade all the way through and, and make it out unscathed. We definitely felt like the the worth of evasion was was greater in Carcosa than it had been previously whether that's because there were more enemies that didn't hunt or fewer enemies that you needed to remove. And maybe it was bigger maps as well. So I think there was maybe a bit more space for for movement and manipulating enemies through movement. And mm-hmm. then, you know, Carcosa had stealth, pickpocketing level two, sneak attack level two, which you don't even need to evade to use, and knuckle dusters, which I've not seen played too much. But obviously, if you can evade an enemy you then don't need to worry about the retaliate that you're giving them with the knuckle dusters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how it how it develops. I hadn't really thought about Survivor being a different kind of evasion, but I suppose it probably is, isn't it? With sort of manipulating enemies or giving yourself movement out of evasion. Yeah. Rather yeah. than simply making them lie down and killing them. I think ro- rogue evasion is more about opportunity, since that's kind of their, their tone, their shtick. Um, finding ways to turn an enemy's exhausted state to your advantage, whereas uh, survivors are more about, well, surviving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other thing with um, with rogues is trying to capitalize on their their theme of wanting to win by a lot, and a new theme in this cycle for rogues was adding stats together. Yeah. Which Lock I think is very roguey. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, and and cheap shot as well. And cheap yeah. shot. Yeah. Cheap shot, which is probably my favorite art description I've ever written. <laughs> is that oh oh what was the art description? Something about it's, eyes, right? It's got yeah, eyes. <laughs> the art description was something along the lines of, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's something along the lines of uh, uh, a woman is throwing sand in the eyes of a monster that is just eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> really good, and that's and that's a nice example of where succeeding by a lot is actually also tacking on essentially an extra action to right, yeah, to yeah. ability. And it seems like we've seen now with rogues throughout this cycle, they've had more ways of avoiding actions, so things like sleight of hand, and then they've also had ways of adding more actions into things, whether that's through cheap shot or well, I suppose Lupara saves you certain amount of actions if you're sliding it into hand and then doing more damage right yeah rogues are rogues are also definitely the the kings and queens of 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 action economy and speed yeah yeah my feeling is that their stock as solo investigators has gone up this cycle because i play more solo than than otherwise because they have more tools for dealing with enemies in multiple different ways so they've got more flexibility and then lockpicks has just up their investigative ability so so high that yeah it's been really fun to play as rogues yeah definitely but it's it's often because I, I don't often play as rogue but i i get the most jealousy watching rogues because they, they have those power turns don't they where they 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 play five or six cards from the hand and 
<laughs> all your problems go away. But then the rogue kind of sulks off into the shadows for the next four or five turns, drawing more, <laughs> <laughs> rebuilding all their money. It's cool that you mentioned that because that's kind of one of the early design philosophies with rogues was uh, big turns. Uh, yeah. You save up and you save up and then you just have a big play. Yeah. And I, I think Safina as well is, oh, sorry, Sephina, however I say Sephina. Uh, she, she lends herself to that style as well, doesn't she? Because she's got this little sideboard of events which you can pick from on that turn. Yeah, yeah. She was she was a really fun investigator to design. She went through a lot of different iterations, but I really like where she ended up. That that's more that more plays into the rogue idea of uh, flexibility and yeah. versatility. I I don't think this card features under flexibility or versatility, but I mm. feel like it's worth a mention. Um, Charon's Obol. Oh yeah. Which I think is the only exceptional card in this cycle, but. Yeah. Oh no! Of course, there's um, stick to there's the plan. Sti- stick to the plan as well. There's a guardian exceptional right, card, but right, the only right. rogue exceptional card, and I mean, what a card! <laughs> <laughs> Just talk about taking the gambling stakes and really pushing them to the max. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I have a question around it, but but where did you come up with that card? And <laughs> yeah, tell us about <laughs> it. it. Yeah, it, it, well, it sort of came from two different angles. Um, one you just mentioned is the the, the sort of like gambling theme, um, and wanting to make rogue players feel like they were really risking a lot, but you know, with a lot of gain as well. And uh, also the other angle was I I wanted I really had this idea in mind of I really wanted rogues to be these characters that every now and then they would just leave you behind, right? They would just resign in the middle of a scenario where you need help. And you'd be like, Skids, where are you going? And he'd be like, I'm sorry, this is too dicey. I'm out of here. Um, so I wanted to design a card that would encourage rogue players to do that. Because I think it's a fun, I think it's a fun story moment. And in doing so, I, I, this was the, the card that I came up with and something that would uh, make you really fear defeat, but get a lot out of it if you, uh, if you manage to avoid death. Yeah, and it, it feeds so perfectly into Rogue's desire for lots of XP because they've got these exceptional cards. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of like such a no-brainer to take it, and yet the risks are so high. Right, yeah. And if, and and that's where something like Cheat Death came out of that a little bit as well. And, okay, um, yeah, yeah. Definitely a desire to make I'm Out of Here a card that uh, that Rogue's wanted to include in their deck as well. Oh, I, I really like it. I'm up here. That's it's it's a card which is <laughs> so useful in some situations. It's great, yeah. and it, it's perfect in the faction that also has adaptable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and now with the obble, you probably want it all the time, just in case. I, I have to um, raise a, a point. One of my friends made Matt, which is that they were annoyed <laughs> you put Karen's obble in the last pack of the cycle. <laughs> I, I, I counted with yes, but it is in the pack with cheat death. So you know there is that that going on. I think for a card like this, the only real like fantastic place to put it would have been maybe in the very first pack. Mm. Uh, and by first pack, I mean the deluxe box. Past that, I think like including it in the in the middle somewhere would have been a, a huge mistake because no one was gonna no one is gonna include this card in their deck halfway through a cycle yeah, yeah. Um, it's after, after the first game isn't it <laughs> right yeah you're, you're you're gonna you're gonna put it in as soon as you can in order to optimize your experience game so i put it at the very end and that way 
you're not including it at the very end, obviously, like no one is. Um, but it gives you the opportunity to go back and replay the cycle with this card, and that you know kind of changes the experience. We're also we're also in a situation where a, a rogue their first four experience could be the Obol and then two copies of Adaptable. So they've, sure. they've spent four experience and then not actually changed their deck at all for the next scenario until they start swapping cards with Adaptable. Yeah. Which, which yeah. I think is, is, is really cool. It's cards that you would never see in another card game. Yeah, that's that's definitely something that I'm keen on, like trying to take advantage of the experience system and the campaign mode that's built into the game and include some cards that you know just would not be possible in other games. Well, and there's a great example of that in Seeker, so we may as well move on there. You've got No Stone Unturned <laughs> Level 5, which, I mean, it's also like the Obol. I think it, it needs to be a final pack card, but... Mm makes you go back and think, wow, I could have spent my first 5 XP on this and I would be the sort of perfect support character for my entire party because anyone can have the card that they need at the drop of a hat. And yeah, it felt like Seeker's got a real support focus, really sort of leaning into not just getting lots of clues, but also in being useful for the whole party. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, that ties a bit into the investigator... For this cycle, uh, Min is geared more towards supporting a group, so there's a lot of cards that are support-oriented. And you've got no no stone unturned, like you said. You've got guidance. Yeah. You've got logical reasoning for healing horror. The diagrams as well, anatomical yeah, diagrams yeah. for making a, a fight easier or an evade easier. Yeah, definitely. Eureka as well to draw cards. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of seeker cards in this cycle that are geared towards uh, support. Yeah. I thought, oh, uh, I thought that Charles was really Ross. nice to see. Yeah, and Charles Ross pay for other people's, right. people's cards for them. I think particularly because certainly my corset experience, we talked about this in our Daisy episode, my corset experience was getting in into the Devourer below and the Seeker actually not having as much to do early on because mm. some of the locations they couldn't investigate very well or they weren't the best person to investigate. And in the corset days, Daisy wasn't the best fighter either. So she was sort of stuck hanging around a bit until you found the ritual site and just leaning into this support aspect of the faction I think is really satisfying and particularly in the faction that has so much card draw the idea that you you're the the sort of the prepared one in the party that's drawn into all the right cards and helped everyone else draw into their answers yeah it's it's come across really nicely I think and I think it's a a really strong side of the faction yeah it's kind of like the if you're the person in the RPG that likes playing a bard yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought it did. In our blind playthrough, I was I was playing Min, and it ended up as almost a pure support class by the end of it. So I did I did a little bit of standing in one place and finding clues in the, in the know, but otherwise it was throwing skill cards <laughs> all over the board. Yeah, and Min is uh, unique in that she, more than any other support character, can do it from afar too. So you can almost kind of just like barricade yourself in a room and use analytical mind in the know and other stuff like that to just kind of make everybody else run more smoothly while staying safe. And I think that's kind of an interesting archetype. Yeah, it's, re- it's really, you know, it's it's an example where you, you wouldn't want to do that as Rex. And I imagine Ursula, who we've had revealed to us, probably doesn't want to do that. She's all about movement. Right. Daisy, certainly, I'm not sure about. But yeah, it's it's really satisfying to see across the... It's like what we've already said, basically, that the individual investigators behave in in ways that are very distinct. And this cycle felt like Min really profited a lot from it. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. How about Mystic? What's What was behind your thinking for the player cards for Mystic? So Mystic cards in this cycle, I think they're split kind of evenly between uh, cards that play around with charges for the benefit of Akachi, or just cards, new cards that have charges on them, and cards that are just, uh, like... How do I put this? You're mystics, so you can break the rules, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say broken, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our notes say uh, mystic themes, more wacky spells. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. The, and obviously there's also a couple cards here for Safina as well. So I just wanted to make sure that there were some events that Safina would want to dabble in as a rogue mystic. Yeah, so that, that's the like of... Uh, quantum flux and uncage the soul and those kind of things yeah and astral travel um basically any any mystic event in this cycle that's uh that's level two or lower is is something that is in safina's toolbox and so it's something that i wanted to make sure that you know she would want to play except for maybe recharge is more of an akachi kind of thing when i counted up actually there was a lot more spells than i thought there was going to be it's almost half the cards in the set were spells yeah yeah mystic cards Turns out mystics are quite into spells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that tends to be the case for mystics. I think half of their stuff tends to be spells because just due to the nature of the class. You've also got a couple of cards which specifically boost your stat for spells rather than boosting willpower. Right. Is are you wanting to explore more uh, spells that aren't tied to willpower? Is that something you're going to look at, or, or um, we'll see. <laughs> so I, 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 that was a silly question to ask because I knew you couldn't, you couldn't say anything. <laughs> Frank, cut us, well, pull I, us out. <laughs> uh, I think it's more just making sure that opportunity's there for the future. You know, I, I actually understood it in a slightly different way, which was just that feeling of, particularly with a catch, a catchy being an almost pure spell mystic, not having a sort of a secondary class. Really, I felt like it was a real case of doubling down on you want spells as a mystic and sure you know so the spirit of Thame boosting spells grounded only boosting spells rather than other things just really encouraging the mystic player to not sort of think well I'm, i might take shriveling but the rest of my cards are going to be from my off class it was saying no 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 this faction is really all about about committing to spells which i really like i, I like the idea that if you're playing as mystic you want to be the person who's really kind of into the mythos and into the kind of the weirdnesses of it <laughs> yeah it's worth noting now i know we still have survivor to go but i should also mention that there are definitely cards in every cycle that are seeds for future cards or like future future combos or future investigators even and that's something that i think players will see more as they as new investigators come out and then it sheds new light on on older cards you know yeah yeah i think something like if we're moving on to Survivor, something like infighting, I wondered where its place was at the moment. And I thought if we end up in the jungle with lots of snakes on us, it might be the <laughs> ideal card for lots of little... I mean, there were quite a few cards that we talked about, you know, what if you're being swarmed? And often, in certainly in Solo, you don't end up swarmed. Mm -hmm. So things like I'll see you in hell, you don't need to use because you're, you're all right. And actually, yeah, maybe there'll come a time I imagine there might come a time. It's nice to know that some cards, their place might not be in this specific cycle, essentially. Yeah, and uh, talking about that card specifically, survivors more than any other class have this theme of uh, the, their cards get stronger the worse off your personal situation is. 
So yeah. with the exception of Trench Knife, I think they get pretty much every card that deals with being engaged with multiple enemies. So you have like uh, Cunning Distraction is able to evade lots of enemies at the same time. So is the higher level Survival Instinct. And then you have Infighting and Not Without a Fight and stuff like mm. that. There's sort of this growing theme for survivors of uh, if if I'm if you're engaged with multiple enemies and you know you're buried you're buried in enemies you're pinned survivor is what you want to be you know yeah yeah the, the other key thing we saw in survivor as well is is recursion and um, I yeah. think it's it's uh, it's no coincidence that the card called true survivor is about recurring <laughs> recurring yeah. innate cards. No, it's that's definitely true. That's uh, recursion is like one of the heaviest survive survivor themes. I mean, almost with the exception of Pete, every survivor investigator thus far has dealt with it in some way. Yeah, yeah, and I think resourceful is probably one of my favorite cards of the cycle. I've loved all of the three icon skill cards, but resourceful maybe because I've had the most time playing with it. It's just really exemplified to me the ideas of flexibility and the way that survivors can have what feel like sort of quite strong cards but actually when you get multiple uses out of them that's where they start to really come into their own you know playing a lucky once is great but then playing resourceful and getting it again is even better and then playing true survivor and getting the resourceful starts to become really powerful but it's a completely different way of playing the game yeah playing one or two cards that stay on the table and and then you're set yeah and that and that plays into the other survivor theme of uh less is more like you can run a survivor with no hand if you're able to continuously recur cards from your discard pile. And then that feeds into some of the other new cards like Madame LeBranche, who can give you some cards if you have no cards, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, she really wants you to be, like like you say, when things get worse, when you're right on the edge, Madame right. LeBranche is, is at her most useful. Yeah, definitely. I also noticed in Survivor we got Chance Encounter level 2, which I think mm-hmm. is the only card that was a a Dunwich card that we got a leveled up version of but we also got newspaper level two and that more generally leads to this question of will you always want to be doing leveled up cards from the core set or previous cycles or you know there'll they'll come a time surely where you can't do any more leveled up versions <laughs> I think the coolest thing about the system that we've made here is that really we can do whatever we want in terms of upgrading cards downgrading cards we could have cards show up from four cycles ago we could have cards that uh that show up in you know cycle two and then get upgraded in cycle four like there's basically we have the freedom to do whatever we want with this regard because you can you can skip uh cards if you want so we could we could create a level three card from scratch and if we wanted to in a in a future set we could make a level we we have five different options, right? If we wanted to make a new yeah. version of that card, and that freedom is really uh, liberating as a as a designer, but it's also great for the players because it means that you never need to own any particular expansion in order for a new card to be valuable. So, like um, newspaper level two, for example, I think newspaper was from Dunwich, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah Having so... said the only chance encounter was, I realized I'm wrong with that. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I, I thought I... that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to. Uh, anyway, the, I bring it up because it's if you skipped Dunwich, then uh, that newspaper level two is still something that you can use. It's not like a useless card to you. Yeah, yeah. And if you happen to have both, then it provides some more opportunities for deck building in that you can start with the level zero version and you know evolve into the level two version later on if you wanted. 
or ignore one of the two versions or whatever you want to do. And there's nothing to stop you effectively going sideways from from the rules I've read. So you you could do a different newspaper level two at some point if if it was something that you really, really wanted to do. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't think we've done it yet, with the exception of the like the strange solution and the archaic glyphs and stuff like that. Yeah. But side grades are definitely something that the system can do, and it's kind of what we did with emergency cash in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was gonna to a lesser extent, up, yeah. word of protection, in that the the level five word of protection doesn't have the level two word of protection stuff with it. Yeah, yeah. And we felt at the time with chance encounter particularly that it wasn't a straight upgrade that what the level zero version did and what the level two version does are actually, they sort of maybe a slightly different, they have slightly different investigators who want to use them. Yeah, yeah. They're they're almost two completely different cards. Yeah. They just happen to share a name so you can't run, you know, all four in your deck at the same time. Right, right. That and that and um, you know, they both deal with the same exact uh, sort of theme of getting an ally in a discard pile back. Yeah. So it, it made sense for them to be, you know, the same title and the same artwork. But yeah, you're totally right. They like very different strategies revolving around them. Yeah. Speaking briefly about the people not having access to earlier versions of the cards, do you mm-hmm. look at the cycle in isolation, say together with the core set, to see what kind of decks people end up with with that pool available available to them? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's that's something that uh, I feel really strongly about because it's one of the one of the best things about this game uh, and well any cooperative LCG really is uh, it's got a low barrier of entry. You can pick up a core set and pick up whatever cycle is out and play. You don't have to own all of the previous cards. So that's definitely something that we examine. And obviously, it's not having a bigger card pool is going to be more optimal for you. Because you're going to be able to build, you know, more different kinds of decks, and you're going to have all these options available to you. But we want to make sure that every cycle's card pool is something that can stand alone on its own TV. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's good as well. I mean, I've had a couple of people ask me, you know, I've got this deck for, you know, the next scenario. What do you think? And I look at it and I say, oh, you could put this, 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 and this in. And they say, well, I haven't got any of done with. But yeah. it, it gives the, <laughs> it gives the deck a different flavor, uh, and mm-hmm. I and, and I really like that. I think it's it's something that feels better in a co-op game as well uh, yeah, especially yeah. one with the theme of arkham because you, you maybe feel a bit like you're making do with the tools you've got available yeah definitely i i think that's actually a play survivor if you're making yeah, do yeah, with the survivor. tools available <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think that that is kind of always going to be a bit of the uh the, the subtext with deck building in this game because investigators are quite limited in what they can take purposefully, so that you're you're always kind of feel like you're playing with, with the tools that you have access to. And me, for me personally, I I think that can be fun as a deck building challenge, and also mm-hmm. it can be fun when someone comes to you and says, "Hey, why don't you have you you have uh, four allies in your deck? You should take charisma." And uh, and they say, "Oh, what what's that card do?" <laughs> <laughs> I I think that can be a fun moment and and sort of like a an opportunity to uh, to discover something new, you know. To discover yeah. a card you didn't know existed before, rather than yeah. it, it, it's 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 a lot easier to swallow when it's a discovery in a, in a way that's like going to improve your deck and not discovery like someone plays it across the yeah, table yeah. from you on you and like wrecks your your day. Yeah, I just schooled you with my charisma deck. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. and you're thinking, Definitely. well, I didn't know that. that exactly. Was a yeah, thing. yeah. And you sort of feel when you play those kind of games, you feel the need. It's against the new player to go through your deck and say, by mm-hmm. the way, I've got this. And if you don't know about it, you can just die. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> and and for fun many fact. for many people that that can be fun too for a lot of people, but I think it's one of the one of the best things about this game that you don't need to own any previous cycles. Uh and it's it's why the leveling up system is designed the way it is. I, I've yeah. sort of, I've I've rolled around in my head a few times the idea of doing a draft for for Arkham and how how you could make that work. Mhm. But uh, I always come back to because you did the ultimatums for the, the <laughs> and there's there's the is it the ultimatum of chaos is it yeah it's the ultimatum of chaos yeah which that sort of brings that feeling of the draft like you don't know what cards you're gonna get <laughs> you know you know what I mean <laughs> yeah definitely yeah it's so important in this game that your investigator is personal to you and that I really like the moments where someone's built a deck and there isn't a right or wrong way to play it. They might have six allies and not have access to charisma, but as long as they know what their deck does, that's more important. Yeah, I think um, another big part of the way the game is designed is so that your deck is important, but equally important is your ability to pilot your deck. Yeah. And like knowing which cards are left remaining in your deck is really important, and also just knowing how to how to play the game the most effectively and like how to best take advantage of your three actions every turn is just as important, if not more important, than the actual contents of your deck. I think you can make it through any scenario with just the core set if you're a, a very skilled player and you know what you're doing. I, I know yeah. someone had asked on the Reddit. The, the subreddit for, for Arkham Horror of the day. Um, how long? How long do you guys spend setting up at the beginning of a scenario? Mm-hmm. I, I, I just replied to him that you know, congratulations, you've discovered most of the game. You know, <laughs> some scenarios certainly you've you've got a bit of luxury in those first few turns. You can set yourself up for challenges to come. Other ones, you've got to have your foot on the gas uh, straight away. So yeah. some, you know, you you can't use your cards for what you originally tend, intended them for. They've got to be, you know, hit points or they've got to be skill skill cards to commit to tests. Yeah, definitely. I think we're drawing to an end of talking about player cards and we should probably move into scenarios because what you've just described <laughs> there, Peter, is scenario related. A final player card question. Friend of the show, Sean, looked up the story <laughs> behind the key of Is. Yeah, and the idea of this sort of almost Atlantis-style underwater city that disappears and the key being the device that un- unlocked the dam and flooded the city, which is just an amazing bit of lore that's not really on the card at all and is not required of players to know about. So just, yeah, it's an incredible card, really interesting. Did you see any of the response to the card when it came out and particularly the response about it being super powerful broken level powerful that kind of thing and uh, so first question were you aware of it and second question does it does it bother you did, does it you know are you pleased that it had that kind of response because <laughs> it is a powerful card yeah yeah so I, I i don't i i'm i'm pretty happy with where the card is i think I, i'd much rather people be excited for how powerful it is than the opposite for a level five card um i think it's important that these high level cards feel like something that you really want to, you know, strive towards and work towards to acquire. Yeah. And it has enough drawbacks that I think it's in a decent place. Like it's it takes up an accessory slot, it's five experience, it's unique, so only one person's gonna have it in play. It's uh, a more temporary card than people give it credit for. Mm. Because Particularly as soon as you start in the taking... cycle with corrosion. Sure. Well also just like any any time you're taking horror, it's you have to put one of it on the key. So as long as you, as long as you're taking horror 
steadily, which in this game you you, you likely are in any scenario, it's, it's only going to be in play for a certain amount of time. And then it's eventually going to leave, and when it does, it's going to take the top 10 cards of your deck with you. So, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is a very powerful card. Uh, no one's no one's denying that. <laughs> so you know we're keeping an eye on it. But uh, overall, I'm I'm pretty happy with the reception. Cool. And the and all of the themes that you mentioned with with yeast and the dam breaking and all that stuff is kind of tied into the mechanics of the card, which I really like. Yeah, uh, the like fl- it's, can, it's incredible. It's incredible. You can kind you of could... imagine the the horror being placed on the card as like the the water building up and. When the dam breaks, all your cards go with it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And just the fact that the lore behind East fits so well with Mont Saint-Michel and, 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 you know, and a sort of a lost city, which fits so well with Carcosa. It's just, there's so much packed into that card. We could do a whole episode on it. It's really, <laughs> <laughs> it's really sort of satisfying. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was there was a lot of discussion with between myself and the rest of the the sort of Arkham story group and our art directors about Carcosa and how it ties into other myths and existing cities and that's kind of how we landed on Mont Saint-Michel as a as a setting. And okay, yeah. Mont Saint-Michel is similar in a lot of ways to this fictional city of East and uh East of course also is in the King in Yellow stories. Mm-hmm. And ties into Carcosa in a lot of ways so it all just kind of like uh it's all like a big web that ties together yeah and that feeling of knowing that there's a web going on behind what you're doing within the campaign makes you as a player feel like you're the investigator which I think is just it's yes such a satisfying feeling to have it's really that you're trying to piece things together and and that kind of thing so yeah so let's let's go into (laughs) scenarios because we're sort of talking around it a little bit sure the first thing we should, I want to mention about the scenarios, Matt, you've talked in the designer notes, and I think you mentioned it in our last interview as well, that you mm-hmm. were really interested in this idea of the unreliable narrator. Yeah. Can you maybe share some of the tricks you used to make us not seem sure of what was happening? Sure. So a lot of it is in the overall plot structure, and there's all these mysteries that are never, never really solved, um, or at least never fully solved. So like, for example... Right right off the get-go, when you fall asleep in the prologue, and then you wake up and everything's all messed up in Curtain Call, there's this lingering question of, you know, what what exactly happened? What caused this? And it, it forces the player to think about whether or not this is like a some sort of dream sequence, or whether this is real. And that kind of sets the tone for every other scenario that follows where every scenario has stuff going on that doesn't really make sense in, 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 in one way or another. And it forces the player to think about whether or not this is something that's actually meant to be happening or whether it's a delusion, it's all in our head. So like overall plot structures is built with that in mind. Um, but then also like there are more subtle references, like little lines that, if you took if you're just reading through it you'll probably just gloss right over it but if you examine certain lines individually they don't make sense um or or there's a second interpretation beyond the literal interpretation that sheds new light on it the one that struck me and mm-hmm. i i completely understand uh, well I, I can predict how you're going to answer which is that you're not going to confirm <laughs> it one way or another but one thing that that i spotted all the way through is there's several references to this not being the first time you've you've hmm. been through this yeah so i think it, it happens in the it's in one of the cells in the asylum yep. it's the familiar like been, cell. you, you know you've been here before and it, it crops up again a couple of times i think it's on the 
back of one of the um, agendas in the very last scenario in Dim Carcosa. Yeah, uh, certainly the, the way... Dim Carcosa has a couple of those, yeah. So th- th- that's quite cool. And then there's there's when you get to the end, you read that text, the epilogue, if you've, if you've possessed at the end of the scenario. And mm-hmm. there's a big hint there that it's not necessarily the first time this particular chain of events has happened. Yeah. And, and again, yeah, like you said, I, I won't, I won't like for sure confirm or deny whether or not that's a thing. Cause I think the whole point of a lot of that text is that there isn't a single interpretation of any of the events that happen in, in this cycle. Part of it is dependent on your choices and, how your investigator or how you, the player, feels about what's going on, and that plays into the doubt slash conviction thing. But part of it is also just uh, there are because in the King and Yellow mythos and in, in the in the the stories of the King and Yellow, there's multiple interpretations of what is going on there. I wanted to have that same thing here, where there's multiple interpretations of what these events mean and what they could what could be going on. And um, there's a couple interpretations that that I fixated on as being the ones that players would interpret the most. But then there's a, you know, there's a bunch of other ones as well. And that's certainly a hint towards several. Yeah. I think it's not worth us asking you, is this right or is that right? Because leaving it open to interpretation is so important to the experience of Carcosa. Yeah. But I think asking how did you get to this point of it being really open is is sort of worthwhile as well sort of more generally for the interview i noticed that there's a lot of use of what should be uh, sort of rules text in ways that is non rules based so for mm-hmm. instance in the revolution uh, resolutions for curtain call the first bullet once you've got out of the flavor text is or the story text rather is a bullet that doesn't do anything to your campaign log. <laughs> you know, did you think the police would be able to do anything? Or do you think it was wise not to go to the police? At, at what point in the design, and you know, similarly like on the back of Acts as well, in, in for instance, Last King, at what point in the design did you realise that you had this rule set that you could use not to impart rules, but just to impart weirdness? I think, uh, I'm trying to remember the first time I did that in development. I think it was pretty early on in in Curtain Call, um, where I added that on that exact resolution, the one that you're talking about. And um, at first I did it not intending for it to be like the final text. I, I thought like, oh, this is a fun little gag here. I'll just mess with my playtesters a little bit. But over time, I realized that that sort of uh, that sort of thing there, that like almost kind of mocking tone, like the campaign guide has a life of its own and it's, it's looking down at your decisions, uh, is something that that fits the flavor and the theme of the the cycle as a whole. Like it, it forces you to go back and doubt the decisions that you just made and doubt whether or not, like if you, if you go the conviction route and you think everything's real, a lot of that text is designed to make you feel like it's not. And if you are taking the doubt route, it, it does the opposite, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a lovely interplay as well, where if you're doubting what you might find is more evidence of some kind of conspiracy Right. So p- particularly in Lunacy's Reward, if you're the doubter who goes, no, 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 that couldn't possibly have been real. I'm going back into the house. What you find is evidence of some kind of cult. Yeah, you, you intrude on a meeting at that point, don't you? Yeah, the secret meeting. Yeah, yeah. and, you, and you, it confirms your suspicions when you walk back in and everything's fine. You yes, know? yeah. So yeah. I, I love that the doubt route, the doubt route in a way is is to me one of the things I really enjoy out of the mythos. And, and it's this idea of investigating something that you suspect there's more going on than it's 
it's straightforward. So it's that kind of true detective style where mm-hmm. it could just be a mass murderer, but what if it's actually a cult? What if it's actually something spookier and darker than that? And there were so many hints to that within Carcosa that, yeah, it was really rewarding to play as a yeah. budding investigator. <laughs> another another inspiration for me are the, the recent like Telltale uh, games, the video games. Yeah, yeah. Where you, you'll make a decision and you know a message will appear at the top of the screen that yeah. sort of alludes to the fact that that decision was important in one way or another. It's such and such as remembered you did that. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and th- there's nothing more heartbreaking sometimes when you do something. Is it Clementine, the girl? <laughs> yeah. And it's like Clementine, yeah, Clementine, remember, and you're like, oh no, what have I done? No. <laughs> Clem, don't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, that, that is almost to the point, that those messages where they they have an effect even if there's no there's no connection to it a mechanical change in what happens it's like mm-hmm. a, a pavlovian conditioning isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah and there's would... there's some uh there's some campaign log uh like recording your campaign log instructions that um that have that same sort of effect in the cycle too like there's um correct me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure curtain call no matter what resolution you get you get record that the stranger is on to you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost a useless note because no matter what, the stranger is on to you, but it just kind of fills you with a sense of impending dread or something. Uh, that like, what does that mean? Like, he's on to me. How? You know. And and you can no matter what you do, well, you always think in the back of your mind, if I'd done something else, would he not be on to me? Right. 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 Yeah. Exactly. Especially if you're not, you know, reading all the resolutions afterwards and you're you're going back and replaying it. Yeah. Yeah, within this setting, you can have more of those things dangling, and that's part of the flavour of the story in a way that if it was a more traditional, sort of conventional, pulpy story, you'd want all the loose ends tied up. But part of the journey of Carcosa is not having the loose ends tied up and being left with these questions hanging. So that works Mm -hmm. really well, that your campaign log fills up with questions that you've yet to solve. (laughs) <laughs> um, but before we get sort of lost in the flavour, though, Peter and I really noted the increase in difficulty in this campaign as well. That mm-hmm. there are five shroud locations, which we we only saw one six shroud location in Dunwich, but other than that, four was the highest point. I think also the fact that you have to play curtain call first, so you didn't get the freedom of two slightly easier scenarios at the start of Dunwich. I'm doing that classic thing of comparing it to Dunwich when I said I would try not to. And then also, <laughs> I mean, it is actually probably a germane comparison as well. If you fall off the train in Essex, you get a weakness. But mm-hmm. if you don't make it out of the asylum in Unspeakable Oath, that character's campaign is over, even though <laughs> you can carry on the campaign. Yeah. So there's, there's a noted difficulty increase. Is that just part of a response to players having more player cards and things like that? Or, or you know, how, how much of a deliberate choice was it to make this harder? I would say it's um, about half and half, like half a deliberate choice and half just the way the cards ended up. I mean, during playtesting, we go through so many different iterations of uh, the, the core encounters uh the you know the encounter sets that are repeated all throughout the cycle mm. that uh by the end if they turn out to be you know on the difficult side i'd rather err on the difficult side than than on the easy side personally yeah so a, a lot of times they ended up where they ended up and i i said to myself okay <laughs> i'm content with that you know and curtain call in particular has very few cards aside from those encounter sets I and mean, it's basically just uh, locations 
and yeah, uh, act yeah. And there's nothing yeah. in the in- encounter deck that's not right of the sort of little unit sets. Yeah, exactly. So you know that the heightened uh, difficulty of those encounter sets played a bigger role in the difficulty of that particular scenario. But also, just I think more people are familiar with the game by now. Picking up the Carcosa cycle, I think there's a there's a there's still going to be some people picking it up just right from the core, and I want to cater to those people to a certain extent. But I think there's a higher percentage of people who have played many games before Curtain Call. So going into it, I wanted it to feel like like yeah, gear up. You know, this is going to be a toughie. <laughs> yeah. I, I know you mentioned this on the Mythos Busters episode, but that idea that investigation matters, mm-hmm. that there are going to be intellect tests that matter, that it's not just you have one person getting the clues and you will protect them, that everyone needs to sort of pull their weight. I think it's yeah. Yeah, really, really noticeable. There's also, apart from the emissary in Curtain Call, there are no other, other the rats as well, but there are basically no significant hunting enemies in that Mm -hmm. scenario and the agent of the king there's like the biggies or the tiny ones so in theory evasion also matters in curtain call if you can avoid a fanatic or avoid a poltergeist you're done with them you don't have to deal with them anymore yeah just didn't know that coming in (laughs) (laughs) yeah we mentioned the the that interlude lunacy's reward this also felt like the cycle where what happened outside of the scenarios really mattered there was really mm-hmm. interesting introductory text to scenarios and interesting resolutions and that interlude. How did you, did you know that it was going to be that impactful? How did you settle on it being that way? That's a good question. It was kind of uh, one of the last things that I worked on in that box. I knew that I wanted to have an interlude at the end of The Last King just because I had some extra space there and I, I wanted to do something more with mm-hmm. the... Um, you know, with the doubt and the conviction, because yeah. up until that point, I hadn't done too much with it. I mean, you basically had the the decision of whether or not to go to the cops, and that was that was it so far. So I, I wanted the last king to have that moment too, where you're trying to decide whether or not this is all real. And uh, I actually worked a lot with the LCG team's intern at the time to come up with those three different options. So we had the you know the doubt option the conviction option the repercussions for each of them and then i i also wanted there to be this sort of middling option where you're you're just not sure you yeah. know yeah and there'd be there'd be like a, a pro and a con to both of them and then as as i was designing the rest of the cycle what those pros and cons were and how they came about became more clear over time i think at the start i just had the you know the the immediate effect and none of the lasting repercussions and i built those uh, after the fact. And it's interesting that that's almost one of the, the signature things about this campaign is that, that that particular scenario and the resolution for it then casts a shadow over the whole rest of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, we talked about it way back after this box came out, Frank, that uh, as soon as we saw the intro text for Echoes of the Past and we saw that, is it Sebastian turns up at Echoes of the Past? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I straight away said, okay, well, we've got those five patrons and we've got six packs i bet one appears in each pack yep and and instinctively <laughs> frank was like oh well that doesn't feel quite right it doesn't feel then like it's a sequential it feels like a lot more flat the layout where you've got this one scenario that then influences the next five but I, I really like it i think it's really really good yeah i came around to liking it as well because i i realized that the importance of that interlude you're you're going to be reflecting on the choices you made for the next mm. five. Yeah, it's, it casts <laughs> such a long shadow. Yeah, it becomes really important. You could have 
interviewed three and killed two and then intruded on a secret meeting or you could have interviewed none and then killed them all and you know you've got two different campaigns there in terms of the effects that they're going to have and how it's going to alter the experience so yeah it's, it worked out really well yeah definitely and that that aspect of it with the interviewing uh the the five vips and them you know they're they're like uh hints at the the remainder of the cycle that was all built pretty early okay that was all intentional did the changing of the chaos bag tokens come first or did you add that once you had the interlude no that was that was also something that i wanted to do right from the beginning so like we had already done the the dunwich style of you know starting with uh skulls and hoods and then adding the other two tokens based on your choices and then being like a permanent addition to the bag so for this cycle i wanted to do something a little different so the idea was you start with skulls only and then the other three tokens would get shifted in and out of the bag based on the choice in just the previous scenario and i kind of i mean i'm not gonna go on record as saying that i'm definitely gonna do something different every cycle but i like the idea of the chaos bag operating in, in a little bit of a different way in each cycle um because we have that opportunity you know yeah particularly if you're playing as a mystic knowing knowing that the bag is changing is in itself interesting to you and you can you know, for, for some characters, you don't care about it really at all. It doesn't matter too much. And certainly, mm-hmm. I think in, in Echoes of the Past, any token you have is still going to be a minus two on easy or standard. So it, it sort of doesn't matter in a way, as long as you can be two up, you don't mind. But if you're the Mystic, mm-hmm. you know, playing Defiance, you can call the right token. You you <laughs> kind of know the composition of the bag. Jim loves it because there are multiple skulls. Yeah, I, I like that it's not a it, it's not a static thing that just says put these tokens in at the start of the campaign. Yeah, I really like the way it went in Dunwich. It feels like in this campaign, it feels more um more slippery. Like I, I quite liked in Dunwich when you drew the Elder Thing token, you were like, ah, oh, that's because we picked right. we picked the Necronomicon. But in, in this in this <laughs> campaign, it's it's it feels maybe less anchored to. Obviously, it changed every game, so it does change depending on what you did. Mm-hmm. But the the tokens feel less anchored to your choices, maybe. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit more erratic, definitely. I, I, I do like how it affects replayability, because you could play the same scenario three times, and the, which token which token is in the bag is going to change things a little bit. But yeah, it's it's something that we wanted to play with, you know? It, it, it really it, it changes very much the flavor later on. I think it's in... Yeah, in Dim Carcosa... There's, I think it's it's something like if you draw the token during an attack or an evade, uh, a fight action or an evade action, you get attacked. Is that right? That uh, sounds right. Yeah. So, something along. It's, I don't it's, remember. It, <laughs> it's it, been so long. It, yeah, it's been a while since I played it, but it, it has a particular effect during a, a fight or an evade action. One of my friends kept on drawing it when we first played. Oh every, yeah. Every yeah. single time he drew the same one again, <laughs> and it, but but it, it lent a particular flavor to that 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 scenario. So I, I quite like it when the even if they're quite harsh when the effects are significant. <laughs> if mm-hmm. you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, definitely. They uh, when they I think the mechanic worked best when they were very different from one another. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And yeah. played into different themes for that particular scenario, like uh like um trying to think of one. I think in the pallid mask, I want to say they they were quite different from one another, but don't mm. take my got... word for that one. <laughs> You've got tablets in that that if you fail, you're going to go and fetch a ghoul or a geist. Right. And then you've got cultists where if you're attacking, I think it's cultists, you do less damage. 
which yeah, either way yeah, they're nasty yeah, yeah. but <laughs> but depending on what you have you know if you know you've got cultists in the bag you're really nervous about your attacks and committing extra vicious blows or leaving yourself more time and if you don't if you've got tablets you're then panicking about enemies coming out things like that it's it's really interesting it means that one of my favorite cards is even better in this cycle which is defiance because <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that card uh i think it's i think it's maybe a bit underrated it's also got what is possibly the best flavor text uh, <laughs> so far it's fantastic everything about it i love I'll have to sneak in a, a, a shout out to Defiance whenever I can. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I'm done now. <laughs> in Gert and Gore, we've we've talked a little bit that it's a hard opening, and there is the randomness of which act you end up with, whether you've got ooze, fire, or flood, and that mm-hmm. will determine the tokens you get for the next scenario as well. More generally about the the scenario. What did you really want to achieve with it being hard, scary, kind of a lot of investigation from from the beginning, and the fact that it's also potentially infinite? Mm. I, I think more than anything, uh, my primary goal was, uh, as far as like emotional impact, was a sense of disorientation. That you could play that scenario two or three times, and events play out differently, and things don't quite line up, and that in and of itself sort of plays into the the themes of the whole cycle it's very different from like if you play the if you play knight of the zealot or well maybe not the full knight of the zealot campaign but if you play like the gathering multiple times events pretty much play out the same time the, the same way every time because they are the events that happen in that scenario it's like watching an episode of a tv show um but curtain call is very different in that you know, sometimes the whole theater erupts into flames and other times it's flooding and then there's the slime one and then and there's the monster that shows up, and then you kill it, and it shows up again, and it kind of begs the question of, did you kill it the first time? Did Was that a dream? Like, all this whole thing, this whole scenario is uh, very disorienting, and that was kind of the intent, more, more, more so than anything else. It's disorienting, but it's, I think it's also really memorable, and maybe because I, you know, obviously the first, first scenario of a campaign, so I've played it more, mm. but it was terrifying how much i remembered of curtain call getting into dim carcosa and all the callbacks within that (laughs) scenario that you're back on stage and dealing with the play and things like that yeah like i think the the infinite nature of curtain call is important to make people really familiar with it to a certain extent you can try and take your time and deal with the emissary enough times and cover all all of the ground of the theater and what that means is that you really know that that map intimately which means mm. that then when you get to Doom Carcosa, it's this real horrible sense of deja vu. That's that's awesome that that played out that way for you, because that, that was also definitely a thought of mine, that when you get to Dim Carcosa, it should feel like you're on stage acting out the play. Yeah, I did wonder as well if there were the same number of locations in Dim Carcosa as in Curtain Call, but I I don't think it does match up. I wondered if the no. map was meant to be... Because there is the... <laughs> it's, you you set up the curtain call locations as a little upside down T, right? And Dim Carcosa is like the full cross. So I wondered if it was meant <laughs> to be, but I was trying too hard there. Another no, that, moment... that was unintentional, but that would have been really cool. <laughs> yeah, you can have that one for free. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and another callback in Dim Carcosa is to Diane Devine arriving mm-hmm. in Last King and the Beast of Alderbaran yelling. Now the real party can get started. <laughs> One of my favourite moments of that last scenario is that. I, I love that so much. I, I, yeah. I was I was doing the voices as I read them out as well, Matt. You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> That's cool. 
I don't want to talk about the Dim Carcosa moment, though. Let's talk about Last King and talk about having uh, an elite enemy appear off the agenda deck that does no damage, no horror, and is aloof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think Diane was kind of a late addition to that scenario. She she didn't originally exist in that scenario. And uh, throughout the course of playtesting, there was a, a sense that... Um, Things should escalate a teeny bit, you know, besides just the, the you know, the, the VIPs flipping into monsters. I don't think I had like any text on that, you know, the back of that first agenda um, at first. So I wanted there to be something like another character that shows up. And I thought maybe a sixth mm-hmm. VIP, um, but not one that you interview, just a sixth VIP who's just kind of like mischievous and running around and just kind of getting in your way a little bit, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. like, you can kill her, but you don't really get anything for killing her. So it's kind of, yeah, she she wasn't really intended to ratchet up the difficulty, per se, just to kind of get in your way a little bit. I think it, yeah. it, what she definitely does is make, she means you have to start off quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you Because you, you, you're keen to get, does she jump onto the person with the fewest clues or the, the bystander yeah, with the fewest right. clues? Yeah. yeah, the yeah. fewest clues, yeah. So, so you sort of, like, you, you focus on running in and getting getting some clues down. So it, it she she means that you don't dawdle, <laughs> for sure. Right. Just like with the Lunacy's Reward interlude as well, it's a moment where I've seen players spend an inordinate amount of time trying to work out how to deal with this thing that's that's maybe not a threat, but it's mm-hmm. perceived to be threatening. Like, she's threatening despite the fact that she doesn't do any damage or horror and is aloof. There's this moment of like, okay, well, who's going to go over there and kill her? And then someone else goes, well, you, remember, you're going to have to spend an action to engage her. Oh, yeah, okay, hang on. It's like, well, do we need to kill her? That sort of so- sowing seeds of doubt within within the players is really good. It's really well done from a for a character that actually doesn't do anything. There's no like add a <laughs> tablet to the bag because you killed her or anything like that. Right. Although it does it does make you question, you know. She's not one of the VIPs that you write down in the campaign log, but you don't know that until you've beaten the scenario. Uh, so you kind yeah, of, yeah. the first time you play it, you wonder if she's someone that you need to keep alive specifically or someone that you want to defeat or that sort of thing. Yeah, and when you've seen other bystanders flipping and turning into their horror forms, which is, mm-hmm. again, like one of the most wonderful moments where <laughs> you're, you're just about to get the final clue and then suddenly you're staring down the barrel of being absolutely thumped by something. You you wonder what's going to happen with Diane then. You know, yeah, there, there must be some other horror thing. And it's just it's just the seed of doubt that's planted there that, that I think is so, so satisfying as a player that you're left not sure. And having that as part of the play experience, I think is really, yeah, really great. Awesome. I, I also uh, just want to mention how much I love the art on the uh, VIPs as well. <laughs> that, that thing yeah, where you the, flip uh, them over and you see the monstrous is that's that's all we always get a kick out of that. I, I think the artist had the most fun with those cards than any other cards in the set. When I when I first pitched that idea to the art directors, they really latched onto it, and my my art director found some like really fantastic artists that could you know because it was important that they looked like the same person on the other yeah. side, just, you know, warped in different ways. And I, I also wanted to come up with, like, five very different transformations for each of them. Yes, yeah. So I, they I don't, they say, don't feel like the same transformation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that definitely came across. They all turn into a different sort of monster. Right, yeah, yeah. I particularly love the art. Ashley's one of my favourites, I think. Because it, it, in that art, it's she, she sort of, she's just standing, it's almost exactly the same room. <laughs> everyone else is just standing around still singing. Uh, but she's this horrific uh, blue corpse. 
Um, still a, fun, a fantastic set of ginger hair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I especially love how everyone in the background is still like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a great song. Really yeah, I really love it. <laughs> but that's the description, right? Everyone's got really into her song. Right, her fun, right. Her final number. Yeah. <laughs> it works really well. Yeah, the uh, I mentioned this on uh, Mythos Busters, but the, the artist for that particular one uh, is uh, Jeff Lee Johnson, who is now actually the art director for Arkham. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's he's very talented. He's done a lot of... He did uh, Adaptable. He's done a lot of uh, art pieces in the past for us. Was he the art director when he did... No, no. Actually, he, no. He, he joined after the fact, yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's... You've got a good art director then. That's a really... <laughs> great thing to learn yeah. yeah you don't need you don't even know the half of it <laughs> <laughs> just wait until the forgotten age oh he did fine clothes <laughs> as well i've just i've just looked up he did fine clothes yeah as well. yeah he did fine clothes yep which is a great bit of art i think the thing i because I, I i like echoes of the past quite a lot it, it feels it's like a bread and butter arkham files situation you know you're in the historic society and you're running around finding clues and there's other cultists who were doing the same thing mm-hmm. and it, it it kind of feels like a like a mirror match you know yeah you, was it was that was that kind of what you wanted to get across there yeah that was definitely uh the intent like we uh me and nate kind of sit down at the outset of every cycle and i i come up with sort of taglines or hooks for every scenario so like last king the hook was interrogating these people right mm-hmm. echoes of the past the hook was we wanted it to feel like less like we're looking for clues and we're fighting against time uh, and more like we're looking for clues and so are the cultists. And it's a race. That was like the the pitch was it's a race scenario. Who can get the most clues first, right? Yeah. And uh, the, the tough part, though, was and it, it was a nice coincidence that we had all of these guys that gather clues because that was like a, a theme of that particular encounter set. So it worked really well. The tricky part was trying to balance it all for different player counts. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was, it was very, very tough to balance. And we went through a lot of different iterations. And in the end, it's kind of, it's one of those scenarios that similar to the Essex County Express, it takes on a very different like tone when you play it with more people or less people. I, I, yeah. I, I remember when we first, when I first played it, we played with four people. And I'd, I'd, as I always do, I went online afterwards to chat about it. And everyone was saying, oh, you know, I got through without any trouble at all. You know, it, it didn't advance. And I was like, we were tearing our hair out. <laughs> we had cut the, the first couple of turns. I think we, we drew quite a few enemies. And the place was swarming with cultists. And we only had one or two people who were really set up to fight them. Mm. So it was like really touch and go for us, that first scenario. Yeah, it's it's one of those scenarios where the deck is built to combo off mm. of itself. So if you're playing with more people, it's going to naturally combo a lot quicker. Yeah. And it's going to have a lot more like one, two punches, you know? We were playing three player the other night. And we had, so we had two Seekers of Carcosa in play at the start. And two of our three encounter card draws were King's Edict. So yeah. each of them grabbed <laughs> two two clues. And then they each grabbed a third clue themselves natively because that's what they do at the end of the mythos phase so we were up to six doom at the start of turn two and i was playing yorick and i'd headed upstairs and i was thinking well i can probably kill one i hadn't drawn a weapon or anything but it was up they were up to uh five fight because of all the doom that they'd taken (laughs) yeah 
and yeah, it was just we we advanced at the start of turn three. <laughs> you know, there's nothing you can do. Like the so yeah, the combo potential is is really is really scary in that scenario in its own way. Mm-hmm. I've also found solo that one unlucky draw you can suddenly be at maybe two or three doom, and if you don't yeah, have a yeah. way of immediately dealing with with an enemy, that can yeah. that can punish you. I don't think the solo version is is like by default easier, but it definitely is more dependent on the individual cards that that you draw you know yeah, yeah. you can draw a locked door and you've not yet revealed any locations and it's, it's right a kind of freebie in the way that as soon as you have at least one seeker out you're stuck mm-hmm. the other thing i wanted to mention about this this scenario i we didn't really talk about this in the last one but i think a lot of people were feeling that rex in particular was very strong to mm-hmm. dunwich and i think i've i've noticed the scenarios in carcosa there's less of the type of act progression that there was in Dunwich, which is you stand in a location and you get lots of clues, which is right. obviously something Rex is really good at. But I, I liked how this this scenario in particular felt like a time for Rex to really shine. Um, and that, it felt really thematic as well, because he's a reporter, you know, he's running around mm-hmm. doing research. Were you keen to experiment more with different ways of the act moving forwards? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this, like you said, this scenario is more traditional in that it's a scenario where you just need to get clues primarily and pretty much only. So naturally, an investigator like Rex is going to shine here. But uh, one of the cool things about the the way that acts are built is that we can we can do almost whatever we want with them. So I, I would say definitely like look forward to there being all kinds of different versions, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A final point on Echoes, why is there no willpower pressure in this scenario? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't Thank you. I don't really know. I, I think uh I think it's possible that there was some and it got it got changed, you know, throughout the course yeah. of development. Like I think Echoes has a lot less tests on treachery cards in general. Yeah. Potentially because, like I said, with that combo potential, some of those cards just need to fire. In fact, a lot of the cards in Echoes, I think, don't even deal with you. They deal more with the cultists. Yeah. So there's a lot less cards like, oh, this is a thing that's happening to you. Test the skill to not have this bad thing happen. A lot of them are, are just like, well, the cultists are doing stuff. You know, you better step up. It's your turn now. So that's that's probably why. There's things like put one of your clues on a cultist or put a doom on the agenda which is right, essentially right. place a doom and <laughs> can you kill the cultist? <laughs> but yeah, it's it's interesting to me that there's no test willpower three if you fail, do this thing. Because I suppose it's not arcane forces or horror making you do that. It's just that the cultists mm-hmm. are being... Yeah, and certainly more than any other scenario in this cycle, but more than most scenarios, this scenario is less about scary things happening to you and more about you're trying to do some research and... These cultists are also trying to do the same thing, and you're kind of at odds with one another, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's not it's not a it's not like a super scary situation that you're in compared to the the compared to the the last couple scenarios before it and the two scenarios after it. It's certainly like the least you know horrifying situation you could just leave. Uh, you're being more proactive. Yeah, yeah. When the, I was just going to say, when the first agenda advances, all the lights go out, and then you light a candle. But yeah, it doesn't actually have a kind of mechanical effect. Right, you know, it's not. It's not everyone takes a horror and you carry on. It's just that you get a candle and you crack on. And yeah, yeah, I think I think it's it's it, exactly as you say. It's really interesting that that's not a case of now we're upping the stakes and this scenario has got scarier or 
here come a lot of monsters or things like that. It's just a case of the cultists are still doing what they need to do, and it's whether you mm-hmm. can do what you need to do first. Yeah, I, I think the reason why I did it that way, I think originally they did have some bad stuff on the back, but um, it created a snowball effect where yeah. if yeah. if the cultists got a lucky draw early on, like like what happened to you in your game, uh, yeah. and they advanced very, very quickly, it suddenly became this like impossible situation. Yeah, if the shroud so went didn't up want... with it getting dark, then right, you'd be, right. you'd be yeah. really struggling then. Yeah, so I almost kind of wanted the opposite to happen. I wanted there to be more of like a rubber band effect where if you were doing really well, the cultists would catch up. And if the cultists were doing really well, you would have the opportunity to catch up. Yeah. So the, the other thing I wanted to... Sorry, Frank, were you about to ask? Go on. No, go on, Peter. Well, I had one last question about Echoes of the Past, which is what's up with the clasp? <laughs> what is up with the clasp indeed? So like, like lots of people, I saw a weakness and I thought to myself, well, if we take this, there'll definitely be a positive trade-off for having an extra weakness in my deck. But I, I don't think it's connected to anything, is it? Is it... It's it, it is. It's, it's very subtle, though, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not like a... It's, not like a um, it's connected in a, in a way that like, the player can see, but the investigator cannot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it's basically like if, if you take the clasp, then you're going to get the ally version of Daniel... Uh, and not have to fight the enemy version. And if you don't take the clasp, you're going to have to fight the enemy version and not actually have a way of, you know, turning him into goop. And yes, because, well, (laughs) we'll we'll talk about this. Well, we might as well start on the unspeakable love because there's that also, there's that red herring there, isn't there, where the enemy side of Daniel refers to the black clasp, doesn't it? Right. Which you can't get if you see the enemy (laughs) side of it. Which is impossible for you to have, yeah. Which which ties, <laughs> this is what we mentioned earlier, where, you know, you think that there's another way you could have done things. Mm-hmm. So so if people haven't seen this, we're sort of, we're, we're, you know, peeling back the curtain at this point. This is something that is impossible to happen behind the scenes. But in the moment, it's really effective because you'll think, what? But how? <laughs> yeah, I think up up until this point, all of the... Um... All of the doubt, conviction stuff had, had just been something that you as the player identify and the investigator feels it, but, you know, you don't, like, personally. And from here on out, I think it starts getting to be more in your head, uh, or at least that was the intent, right? Was, like, trying to create situations where you, the player, rather than the investigator, are starting to think that things aren't, you know, exactly what they seem. Yeah, you you get that after unspeakable oath with whether or not you're allowed to say hasta anymore <laughs> and it's a, yeah, yeah. this rule that leaps out of the game and affects you as a player but i think even coming into unspeakable oath the kind of dual meaning of that introduction mm-hmm. and real feeling that things aren't what they seem this is the scenario that peter and i played together and we were really struck by how the atmosphere the mechanics the theme everything kind of pulls together coming into unspeakable oath which is so fitting because it's such a it is a climactic scenario it can be the end of one investigator's campaign yeah yeah i agree i I think it's one of the most important scenarios in the entire cycle and and i guess coming into being the lead uh, developer on a on a on the Arkham, on an Arkham Files <laughs> game, you know at some point you've got to deal with Arkham Asylum. Right, so right. Is, is that intimidating? A little bit, and I think I kind of dodged a lot of the major issues by having it set in this cycle where things aren't, you know, playing out exactly how they should, and um, there's a lot of... For, for example, um, I think Arkham Asylum, if you were actually in it, it wouldn't be filled with random raving lunatics that stab you from out of nowhere. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of good that happens in Arkham Asylum too. It's not it's, yeah, it's a hospital, as, isn't it? Yeah, right. So so part of it 
part of the the interesting thing with this cycle is it's a situation where what's happening might not actually be happening uh and it might just be your investigators being you know diluted uh so it could just be the opposite right it could just be that your investigators are affected and you're running around doing crazy things and like you know attacking orderlies and other patients and stuff like that and if that's the case then the asylum takes on a very very different flavor right so so in a sense i think it wasn't intimidating because i had that freedom you know what i mean it's like yeah. a get out of jail free there isn't it you can just say yeah kind of none of it's real <laughs> right yeah so i but i don't think that I don't think that this will be the only time we ever see Arkham Asylum. It's such an important, it's such an iconic location in Arkham, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there have to be multiple ways of letting Wolfman Drew escape, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wolfman Drew. That, that as a, talk about sort of disorienting, that feeling of a callback to the core set campaign, to Night of the Zealot in Carcosa, <laughs> it's just... It, you know, fantastic as well that you're left with this real sense of like, oh, hang on, that's Wolfman Drew. And you're like, oh, I haven't made <laughs> masks for ages. Yeah. I, I really like as well that if you don't start attacking the lunatics, you can avoid lots of the challenges of the lunatics by evading them. Which yeah, yeah. mirrors this idea that you, are you the, the antagonist in the scenario causing the problems? Yeah. Right. The monsters of your creation as you kind of cause havoc and things like that and, and actually what you can do is is really quite it's it's clear if what you're what is being described isn't what's happening that you're a very dangerous group of people you know you, <laughs> you, you set a hospital on fire and cause a riot and then run off <laughs> it's true <laughs> yeah. and it, but it's also like um you know if you're going the full conviction route you know as a player or as an investigator it could be the opposite where like all of these people are are being possessed or affected by Haster's madness and you're like the only sane ones left, right? Like you're the bastion yeah. of sanity in this place, you know? So like there, there's, there's two very, very different uh, interpretations of the scenario. Yeah. So, so we should we talk briefly about Haster as well, or, or he who shouldn't be named. <laughs> right. Cause this, this is <laughs> unprecedented so far in the game is that it, it stops you from saying a certain word. Like, I, when I've chatted to people afterwards, there's lots of people who have come from, say, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, and mm -hmm. they've already conditioned themselves not to say <laughs> Haster. <laughs> right, right, exactly, yeah. Um, I myself have uh, come from that background as well. Not like avid um, Call of Cthulhu, LC, or, sorry, RPG player, but I have played in several campaigns, and that was a big deal. Um, like, you're not, you're not supposed to say his name. And, you know, I realized that... <laughs> Like when I do the card for him and, you know, it's going to have his name on it, but I kind of wish that players wouldn't say it. So I was trying to find some way to, uh, to like get that in the game, right. To like get people to call him something other than Haster. And, uh, yeah. So I, I basically did it this way where there's a character who tells you that you got to don't do that. Don't stop it. <laughs> and you either believe him or you don't. <laughs> Because when I first read it, I was like, "Oh, this is this is a bit silly," but I, you know, I'm I'm too good to fall for that. But when we played the last <laughs> scenario, I'd like <laughs> seven or eight times I said Haster. <laughs> yeah, it, I think that when we were playtesting uh, Dim Carcosa, um, every one of my playtesters were really good about it, and I said it like, "Oh my god!" I must have said it like thirteen times in one game, and uh, 
they they just they had like my my one of my playtesters Zach had all of the the horror tokens in his hand and he would just throw one at me every time I said it. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. But but in fact my my friend he was uh, in that last night he was on Yorick and mm-hmm. he had fight or flight so he would just say ooh I don't think I can pass this <laughs> test hasta 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 there we go. <laughs> well I was going to mention that because this is in, obviously in the cycle where your sanity matters. It's mm-hmm. really important to Hasta, and where we've had cards, the desperate skill cards particularly, that play off the, how much sanity you do or don't have. So it's nice that there's also a mechanical element to this rule that's not simply like, oh, I was playing as Roland and I lost the scenario because I said Hasta and I shouldn't have done. You know, right. it, it feeds into a playstyle as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's also kind of like thematic in that you know, saying his name invites him, right? it like invites his presence and that can be empowering like that that's the foundation of the the this oath the unspeakable oath that if you say his name you invite his presence into your mind and so when you when you do that when your friend did that and said haster 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 just to get some extra you know power that's not that's not unthematic that's like perfectly thematic uh in a way yeah what's really nice about that oath as well is that we from unspeakable oath we go into the second half of the campaign and we go into phantom of truth pallid mask and black stars rise which i think of as almost a second dream sequence a little bit like Mm. curtain call and i think there's one mention to haster in the dream introduction to phantom of truth and that's it so if you if you're playing the scenarios back to back you kind of brace yourself oh i'm not going to say haster anymore and the name comes up once and that's it (laughs) Yeah, and it lulls you, you into a of... false sense of security. Exactly. Was was that intentional that you you didn't then dive into sort of mentioning Hastur a lot? Not intentional for that reason, but it was intentional in that, um, like we as players have become conditioned to these the names of these ancient ones. But for the investigators, this is still something that that they're learning, um, and it isn't. You know, like we we want to make sure that none of the knowledge that's being given to the investigators feels like certain, right? Yeah, it's the same thing even all the way back in the core set where it's all like Lita claims that this is happening, and Lita, you find yeah. evidence that maybe there's this being known as a Mordoth, but it's not like oh yes, it exists. Here he is. So that's part of it too. Like we don't want to just throw the word Haster around willy nilly, and I think in Dunwich. There's only one mention of Yag Sothoth in like the entire campaign. Yeah, I think that's when it's just like chewing your brain out and destroying you. <laughs> it says, "It's me, Yog." <laughs> yeah, so it's it's something that um, like we we want to you know retain this sense of mysticism and mystery around the ancient ones. So Haster is not really directly mentioned very much at all until near the end, and of course, like from Daniel because he's he's yeah. the one person saying like. No, this is important. Pay attention, please. Oh, I'm dead. Yeah. (laughs) There's this inbuilt tension in the game between what we as players know and what the investigators know, which you just outlined really sort of succinctly there. And I really love how that is really important in Phantom of Truth, that the, the choices you've made as a player will also then affect the experience that your investigators are having in Paris. Mm -hmm. And yeah, where you feel you are on the spectrum is the kind of scenario you end up getting. If yeah, you're convinced yeah. there are people after you, you're going to have to run away. If you don't quite know what's going on, you're going to have to pin this person down and get information out of them. 
it's you know phantom truth is one of my favorite scenarios it's it's really yeah wonderful elegant scenario awesome so, thank yeah. you it's i don't, I don't know if i have a question about it i just, I just <laughs> it's, yeah it's it's great to me this was the most obvious i guess ref- reference back to the book the king in yellow it seems yeah. very influenced by is it in the court of the dragon yeah the court of the dragon yeah i don't have a question the organ <laughs> playing the kind of yeah the mad noises blaring out as I was reading through The King in Yellow, I was identifying potential scenarios. And um, most of the King in Yellow stories, while like absolutely terrifying, are not great like scenario fodder, right? Yeah. Like I, I couldn't very well have a scenario about being an artist in France and then getting choked by a man yeah. <laughs> randomly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so it was kind of like, all right, how, you know, what 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 can I draw from these scenarios besides just the overall tone? And this was the one story that I felt like, yeah, this could be a scenario. This right here, being chased all throughout France by this uh, this spooky figure and not knowing what his deal is. It's like a cat and mouse game. And that was kind of what led to the entire scenario. And I almost thought to myself, like, yeah, I could just, this could be the whole scenario. Yeah, yeah. The cat and mouseness of it as a as a challenge in and of itself is really rewarding in terms of gameplay you've found a way of adding clues that give you something mechanically to do with them. But also, yeah, yeah. particularly in Conviction, I mean, where you're just trying to survive, clues become a means to surviving and to hurrying <laughs> through the night. It's also like one of my favorite lines of game text in the entire cycle is just a objective survive, survive three nights. nights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really incredible. I love that. Uh, playing recently, I was on the, on the third night and I drew Spires of Carcosa on two separate turns on conviction so it's on minus four doom and sort of the longest third night ever it's really interesting that you can draw a card that adds doom and for the, for once you're desperate to have doom because you want the night to end but in that particular scenario it's inverted for that route yeah and from from the wide expanse of paris we go into the catacombs this is my favorite in this this campaign really 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 liked it on one hand it kind of feels uh, it maybe feels the most gamey of the scenarios, but mm-hmm. it, it, it maintains a really good tone and feel throughout, in my opinion. I, I cool. felt, I think the skull, the effect on the skull token helps drive this. And But as you lay the map out, you have a definite feeling of, of getting deeper and deeper underground. Yeah, yeah. That's that's cool because that was definitely the effect that I was going for. Oh, wait, and as that catacombs perfectly. deck gets smaller, I always have this slight fear that I've not put the right cards in, or I'm getting nerved. Like the deck <laughs> is running out, and you're running out of space. There's a sort of claustrophobia going on. I love you know, my fan theory on this scenario as well is that it's possible that the investigators die at this point because what comes afterwards is so odd and strange that this is kind of like a a visit to the underworld in the Odyssey, for instance, and you're Mm. never quite sure if you've actually made it out or not. Yeah, or or did you you even go to the catacombs, or is it just a metaphor for what happens to your body? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Particularly at the end, if you have the ending where the stranger opens a hole in the ground and jumps into it, you're like, what the hell is happening here? Like, it's really, (laughs) you know, chilling and strange. That's that's like a really cool headcanon for the scenario. I totally agree. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that always really scares me, have you seen The Descent, Matt? 
Uh, no, I haven't. It, it's a really good horror film. So I watched it with a friend who's who's big into his climbing and, and stuff like that. And not to give too much away about the film, but there's kind of a supernaturally element to it. But the first half is mainly this this group of cavers going deeper down into the ground and getting stuck. Uh, and I, that's always the more chilling part for me. Like the idea of being trapped under lots of earth, I find quite... It sends a shiver down my spine. Mm, yeah, definitely. That came across so well in this scenario, and that you're, you're sort of trying to hedge your bets on which direction that you're going, so it's easier to get back to the entrance. Mm-hmm. Whether I don't think that we, when we first played it, we didn't do that. I've played it a couple of times since. I'm always interested in what everyone's map looks like when they're finished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they always tend to look pretty different. Did you make sure, is it always completable, or is there some mad combination of, of locations you can visit where you you get trapped? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's always completable. I, I We did a lot of testing to make sure that it was. It's one of the reasons why a lot of the locations say, like, you know, put, put a location here, here, or here, or uh, give you multiple choices, or put out multiple locations. I kind of started off with the idea that you were heading to the right. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. most of the locations just headed right, and there were a couple that branched up or down. But uh, as we play tested, we we basically we kept running into that situation where uh, you know something something wouldn't fit right, something wouldn't work, yeah. and yeah. Um, we would have to go back and change things. And uh, I think at one point I spent like a four or five hours once it was mostly done. I spent like four or five hours just uh, laying out maps. And then scooping it all back up again, and then laying out a new map, and then scooping it up again, and then laying out a new map. And I did this for, yeah, for hours. I must have done it hundreds of times. <laughs> just checking, check. you know, just yeah. checking and double checking. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some crazy mad combination of locations that makes it lock up, but I don't think there is, because we, we we tested it pretty extensively. And I think, to an extent, maybe you have to have forced yourself down that avenue to, to be able to do it. Possibly, Because yeah. you've got I, I, an option in quite a few situations, haven't you? Yeah. You, you have options so many times with, you know, where to put the locations as you're laying them out that I don't think it's going to happen ever. Um, but it definitely took a lot of work to get it to that point. Well, I, I commend you on it because it's really, really <laughs> well well done, yeah. Yeah, I, I noticed it. I think I've mentioned this to you before, Matt. It did put me slightly in mind of, you know, those chalice dungeons in Bloodborne? Yeah, yeah. Which is almost like it's the kind of the grid layout and the different encounters that that pop up there. Yeah, it's kind of like this, you know, uh, modular map that it, uh, is uh, it's not procedurally generated or anything like in Bloodborne, but there it's different every time you play. I, that's definitely an inspiration for me. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, uh, Warhammer Quest was the other one that that came to mind. I mean, the original, yeah. the new one as well, which I think there's we could maybe spend a, a, an extensive period of time talking about the new Warhammer Quest card games. <laughs> S- sadly, not to be continued in the immediate future. Yeah, yeah, the, the the old school Warhammer Quest as well, where you're drawing dungeon tiles. I know Frank's a fan of that as well. Huge or, fan. Yeah, yeah. Also, what's great is that it's. It's not procedurally generated, it's investigatorily generated. You <laughs> choose which way you go, and you mm-hmm. generate the dungeon based on your choices, the dungeon, the, the catacombs. And you know, now when I play, I try, particularly when I play solo, I try and get a square at some point, if I can, <laughs> because that you can then kite enemies around it, right? <laughs> which is really useful if you're evading and things like that. 
And what that means actually is that I'm behaving a little bit like the investigator where the first thing I do when I come into catacombs is go, okay, if I go forward here and I go right here, can I go right again and I get back to the entrance? And you, you sort of, <laughs> you sort of, you explore your immediate vicinity first and make sure you know how to get out again and that kind of thing. You don't like, I would never, I've been in a few underground places. I don't just go blundering off straight ahead and see how far it goes. I'm the kind of person who explores around and checks you know, check my exits and all of that kind of thing. I love that that yeah. you're imbued with that fit flavor as you play the scenario. I, I I'm the kind of person in that in that same situation. I'm the kind of person who just leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Speed run, yeah. yeah. Well, but fittingly, there's also not a resigned location right at the start. You're in it for the yeah. At what point did you add in the ghouls and the chilling cold encounter sets, which is such a Night of the Zealot, the Gathering, <laughs> callback. Um, I, pretty early, I think. You know, I'm always looking for opportunities to include uh, more encounter sets that are like really thematic, and uh, they're kind of perfect for this scenario, right? Like thematically, uh, Chilling Cold, especially because it's got Crypt Chill in it, and it's just like it almost feels like it's not. You know, if, if you if you skipped Night of the Zealot and went straight to the scenario somehow, and you pulled those cards, you wouldn't think uh, you wouldn't think anything weird of it, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And just the the sort of creepy creatures under the ground, right? Know, we, yeah, we know that the ghouls come from underground, so we're underground, and they love dead bodies, right? So yeah, it al- it almost feels like a an environment tailor made for the Arkham Horror card game. That it's the, the, the catacombs in general, like a twisting passage lined with skulls. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was that was something. As soon as I as soon as I knew that we were going to France, uh, as soon as that was like a part of the story for sure, um, I knew that we had to do a scenario in the catacombs. It's such a cool area, and it's it's such a perfect fit for the mythos, like you said. It's it's also really nice in terms of scale that you have a big. Parisian scenario where you're you're feeling like you're experiencing the city and it has you know landmarks like Notre Dame and Montmartre and places that people know and then you Mm -hmm. go from that grand scenario to kind of something that feels claustrophobic and creepy and that leads us really nicely into where you then zoom out the focus again and we have this much bigger scenario which is Black Star's Rise. At what point was Mont Saint-Michel on your list to be another sort of French location? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's kind of like we, early on, we outline all eight scenarios, uh, right? Yeah. Like that's one of the very first things that we do um, because we order art really early in the process, earlier probably than most people would expect. So it, it's important that we have a nice, good scenario outline for the whole campaign before we get to the point where we're ordering art because otherwise we get stuck in a situation where we're ordering art for a place and now we decide we don't want to go there anymore and that's obviously like untenable right yeah 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 so so outlining the eight scenarios is something that we do like you know it's almost the, the first the very first thing that happens right after maybe like the overall themes of the campaign whatever dark right you've begun with you finish that dark right and then you do this outline. <laughs> yeah yeah so like the, the the very first outline was all right we're gonna start in the theater we've just watched the king in yellow and then question marks right and then after that france that was like <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and then like question marks and then after that carcosa because we have to like end in carcosa that was like important yeah. to me uh so then like france turned into three scenarios because you know why only go to france for one scenario that would be kind of silly yeah and from there a big question was like how how are we going to get to carcosa right 
because I wanted there to be uh, the, the the name of the campaign is the path to Carcosa. So there has to be uh, a place that you go that where the path can be opened. And mm. as we were discussing it, we discussed like, well, there are probably multiple different gateways across the world to Carcosa. And we thought of Mont, Mont Saint-Michel as this perfect place because it, because of the themes that we mentioned earlier yeah. and how it's, it's sort of like the, the mirror on, on our world. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's also just such a beautiful place that now I, super want to visit at some point <laughs> yeah yeah why not yeah why not over to europe yeah yeah i think within the scenario as well what you have that's so striking is you arrive at the port and you're running around the town but you've got the the abbey location in play that says you need three clues per investigator to enter mm-hmm. you know i really lo- i loved the two agenda idea that there's there's no hope here it's choose the the lesser of two evils but i also love that you've conditioned the players enough that if you put a clue like get three clues and come here or six clues or nine clues players will know what to do they don't need an act card telling them yeah 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 that was definitely like a concern of mine when i was developing the scenario because the the act card is is you know it's traditionally the, the first place you look to for guidance so without an act card you're thinking all right what do i do so it's important that, you know, defaulting to your instincts of, you know, well, getting clues is usually the thing, right? So I'll get some clues and I'll yeah. maybe open up the map and like look around. Uh, one of these cards is surely going to give me some kind of guidance, right? And, uh, and, you know, sure enough, that's that's the Abbey right there. And you've got what could be a whole separate scenario in the Abbey. You know, you can do all this yeah, stuff in yeah. the town below, but once you get in, that could be potentially you know your act two where you've gone into the abbey and then there are more lo- you know put the following locations into play right yeah find, in, in, in a normal way... scenario yeah that's that's definitely how it would play out right it'd be like act one you're out here act two you're in the abbey act three you're you know going to the one of these locations and doing the the end part there yeah i love the scenario i think it's terrific even though I was defeated playing it earlier today. I still love it. And maybe I love it more because of that. But I love that you put the agency in the hands of the players to do that, to work it out, that you don't need an act deck to do that. And so there's there's a whole separate thing going on. And then I love as well that you can play it for conviction or doubt. And if you have conviction, you would charge down one agenda route because you know <laughs> the way. And if you have doubt, you hedge your bets. I, I just think yeah. it's... It's really intricate and immersive, and it it fits in really nicely. So yeah, I, I don't really have a, a question about it. I just <laughs> wanted to say it's great. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier, Matt, about I think you'd said you and Nate had, had chatted about different ways of of progressing the act. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what you've done here is you, you've you've forgone the act altogether. Now I'm sure you could have come up with a method of having this scenario work within act and an agenda deck so mm-hmm. it was obviously a decision to make two agenda decks instead yeah uh, do, do you want to talk a bit about that is was that a particular tone you were going for with this scenario yeah yeah it's a bit from the sense of um wanting wanting to evoke a, like a an emotion of feeling doomed like you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't right mm-hmm. or no matter what you do you know everything is falling down all around you but it's also we wanted to evoke this feeling that at this point in the story, for whatever reason, for some reason, you, the player, 
have kind of like lost it, right? Like you don't understand what's going on anymore as much as the investigators do. The the intro text to this scenario has you arriving and you already know that there's some ritual going on and you're here to stop it. And you, you know, like how you got here is it's almost like a frantic pace to the writing, right? Yeah, this, yeah. Is, re- this is really interesting. Because I, I, speaking to, to people I've played through it with, they've often they've often said, oh, hang on, how do we get here again? What was the clue that led us here? <laughs> Right. And you're right. It, it's almost like, okay, here, now go and do it. You know, you sort of right. dropped in it, aren't you? Yeah. And so that kind of plays into the idea of the act card being missing, which is what Nate originally suggested for the scenario was, uh, the, the act card is missing. We have to, you have to go find it. You have to go find the act card, whatever that meant, right? Like it's in the deck or it's set aside or something like that. And as I was examining that idea, I thought to myself, well, this agenda is going to look awfully weird and lopsided without an act card next to it, uh, right? Because it's like an open book. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where I came up with the idea of having two different agendas. And that, that actually was like a really happy coincidence because it tied into the two different routes that I was thinking that one could take to get to Carcosa from Mont Saint-Michel. And that became like, okay, there's there's actually two exits. There's two different ways and yeah like the basically all of the um all of the fun gimmicks of this scenario st- like stemmed from that uh that idea of having two agendas i think there's also that feeling with two agendas that whichever route you're taking you're also doing what the the forces of evil or the cultists or whatever you want to call them want right. to do you've reached yeah. that point where you want to go through the gate so at that point you're not trying to disrupt a ritual or you know seal it you're you're trying to find it as well so you've sort of you've sort of bought in to it yeah yeah and that that i think plays into the major uh revelations in dim carcosa uh one way or the other where it's you're you're either trying to open the path and enter carcosa yourself so that you can stop haster from escaping or you're going in for some other reason and if so what's that reason you know have you been manipulated this whole time or you know like one could even go back to well now i'm now i'm going into interpretations that i don't necessarily <laughs> want people i want people to discover yeah. on their own but one could almost go back to echoes of the past and think uh were we really adversaries at all or was that you know was that all just the game telling us that we were they're called yeah. are they called yeah. seekers seekers of, of carcosa, carcosa. Seek, seekers of Which carcosa is yeah. exactly what we are isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much fun fact for you as well one of the factions in the game is seeker so they're basically seekers, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of them's called Daisy. One of them's called Rex. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking mostly, but yeah, the, this idea of like a plenitude of interpretations. I think the fact that there are three different enemies called Hasta as you come into Dim Carcosa that kind of blew my mind. Where I was like, oh my word, there's the Lord of Carcosa, there's the Tattered <laughs> King. It's like that's brilliant. There's multiple act decks as well. I was really impressed by how, depending on the route you've taken, your experience in Carcosa can be hugely different. So I've played it once where I've turned up with without enough doubt or conviction, and I had mm. an experience in Carcosa, but I've also played it on a, a hard doubt route. And in, in that version, Hasta's everywhere at all times. And it's almost like that case of you know not being able to see the wood for the trees, that you're running around madly trying to deal with the situation. And if you would just accept that Carca- uh, that Hester was real, you'd be able mm. to fight him. But yeah. Sort of, you've sort of refused to. In a, in a sense, you are the arbiter of your own fate. 
Yeah, yeah, really, you really are. And I, I, you know, I'd done the doubt route with a friend to try and sort of find out what it was like. And we were both thinking, why didn't we just believe it? Just <laughs> conviction. But so how did you go about essentially not creating one finale, but creating multiple finales for the campaign? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of like you said, it's, it's mostly in those three different versions of Haster. And to an extent, the three different, the, the back of the act two. Mm, yeah. Like a major revelation in this scenario was always going to be the identity of the stranger. Like who, who is, who really is the stranger and like what has his motive been this whole time? And I didn't want there to be a single answer. Um, so originally I thought, all right, there's going to be two answers. There's going to be the doubt answer and the conviction answer. And eventually I added in the third answer as well as over the course of playtesting, doubt and conviction became more of a scorekeeping thing. Yeah. It's, it's always yeah. something that you want one way or the other. So. So anyway, so the the same thing with Haster. Um, I wanted to make it so that there was three different boss fights at the end that felt pretty different from one another. At the very least, the doubt and the conviction ones, I wanted them to feel very, very different. And in talking with the story group, we decided that Haster was a being that you you can't really physically hurt, per se. Uh, like, what, what pains Haster the most is your understanding of all of these events, which is obviously like a tall order for an investigator going through these these eight scenarios if you were to be in their shoes. But like putting putting together the pieces of the puzzle and learning what Act Two of the King in Yellow actually is and what it means is yeah. what hurts Haster the most. Or remembering what happens in Act Two because right, I, right, I forgot to mention this, but if you, <laughs> if you fail Pallid Mask, someone chooses to read someone is made to choose the no resolution you have to read the second act to work out the site of the of the gate which i i i didn't have a question about that but i just remembered it as such a fantastic <laughs> detail anyone who's read any of the king in yellow you get that resolution and it's sort of like no 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 don't do that no no one thing we know not to do and you you have to pick an investigator to do it someone has to go and you know, sit in the reading room or wherever it is, and then comes back going, I know where the gate is, trust me. Yeah, yeah. And and the rest of the investigators are thinking, oh boy. Yeah, what, exactly. What, what, what it's Mont Saint-Michel, guys, let's go. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah so the, the only way that you can, like, physically harm Carcosa is if you truly believe in your, in your heart of hearts that you can, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, we we had some correspondence from someone who wrote into the podcast, and he he was he was criticizing the scenario, as I think it's a, I think it was he his experience of it was that he had to physically fight or do a lot of physical fighting, mm. and he was saying, oh, well, it, it, you know, it's a shame that we went all the way through with the more investigating characters, and you know, we had to have a fight at the end of it. But I mean, my, my experience of it was totally different. That right. the bulk of it was there was certainly fighting to be done, but the bulk of it was uh, investigation in the various locations. I think you can yeah. probably beat Haster at least in the in that ending we had on that that first playthrough just by investigating locations. And when you yeah. flip, when you flip flip him over and he's got thirty six health, you're like, <laughs> well, I, I sure hope there's another way to beat him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of both. Uh, like I, I I see that criticism too because you know you can go into the scenario and just shoot Haster with a shotgun a few times and he dies if you take the right route and you have all the right tools. But it's kind of like if if that's something that you don't want to be doing, a you don't have to because you can take this other path. And I, I don't just mean like take go back and play the 
campaign again and take the doubt path. I mean, like you can still kill the the you know the Lord of Carcosa version of Haster through locations if you wanted to, um, mm-hmm. through piecing the puzzle pieces together, right? And it it might even still be the preferred way of doing it, depending on the investigator that you're running and that sort of thing. But also, if you've if you've gone through and you've taken the conviction route, you've kind of made a statement about your campaign that you are the kind of investigator that when faced with this mystery and this problem, you take a brute force approach. Mm. And so that kind of, I I would, I would hope that that would appeal more to those players. Like it was important to me that all options were viable. Like if you were, if, because there are players that feel the opposite, right? There are players that love to just, you know, take a, a shotgun and, go up to the ancient one and shoot him in the face. And that's like their yeah, most, yeah. that's their favorite moment in the whole cycle is like defeating, triumphing over the ancient one with bullets and yeah. that but sort of they thing. Like, they like the pulp aspect of, of right. uh, the mythos yeah. rather than the, yeah. the intrigue aspect. And that's, that's even like that, that's a callback to the original board game, right? Cause that's, that's pretty much the only way you win the Arkham Horror board game. Once the ancient one wakes up is to shoot him to death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or shoot, shoot him to the point where he retreats anyway. Cause you never really kill <laughs> any of these things. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure that there was a route in which that was possible, you know, because for every one person that doesn't like it, there's a person who loves it. You've got the the central mystery of the stranger and you've got the different aspects of Hasta going on that. Yeah, it's it's strange to me that you can have conviction and believe that it's real and then arrive and not want to to fight. But different players have different responses, I suppose. Yeah, well, I wouldn't even say that that's necessarily strange, but I'm just kind of providing my reasoning. Yeah, one of the things I noticed, Matt, was that some of the art pieces, so the creature out of Deme, Deem, Mm -hmm. and the, the winged one, first appeared, I believe, in the Call of Cthulhu LCG. Yeah. And... It was really interesting to me spotting them because I think they're wonderful pieces of art and it really brought home to me one of the kind of central themes of playing as the Hastur faction in Call of Cthulhu LCG was all to do with insanity. Mm-hmm. And if you face, if you're playing as Hastur and you face a lot of characters with willpower who won't be horrified by you, you can be up for a quite rough time because it's all about insanity. And <laughs> yeah. I, I felt like that had really bled through into Dim Carcosa, the scenario, how you played with, you know, everyone has to start taking half of their sanity value as horror immediately from the start of the, of the scenario. The whole campaign's been about horror. Yeah. How do you, yeah, I really love that you don't kill us with horror in this, but horror really matters. I suppose I just wanted to know, did you know about the Call of Cthulhu LCG has to start? Oh, for sure. And insanity? Yeah, yeah. I, I used to play the Call of Cthulhu C, or LCG, not the CCG, but the LCG. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we have this nice, big, vast art uh, folder filled with good yeah. art from the Call of Cthulhu LCG, a lot of which are cards that I know about. And uh, I mean, I, I think... Players might be surprised how many of those pieces show up in Arkham, uh, although it's a pretty good percentage of new pieces as well. But yeah, like the the Haster faction was was probably my favorite out of all of them. Okay. So it, it definitely like was a major inspiration for me in developing this cycle and trying trying to make horror matter, but also trying to do madness and insanity in a way that isn't just quantifiable with tokens, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And for this scenario in particular I, I i think it would have been a mistake to just do like oh yeah everything's just giving you horror right and uh, yeah. and you and you go insane and then that's it because some investigators would have found that really frustrating so i wanted to make it 
feel climactic and feel like horror matters without necessarily just like pointing to five sanity investigators and saying you're gonna have a rough time yeah Yeah. (laughs) because that's just it you've you've taken away the fear of being eliminated by horror in dim carcosa but actually that adds its own fear about you're you're taking all this horror then with impunity you think but there are actually (laughs) some really punishing effects that play off whether or not you're on max horror or not yeah yeah exactly yeah and 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 it also kind of plays into this idea that you know in in carcosa carcosa is the realm of badness and being insane while you're in it is like an inevitability like i i I almost kind of wished that um or like i don't i don't know what i'm saying here i guess like (laughs) if you end up in carcosa you're you're already insane like it's already too late (laughs) for you you know what i mean that's kind of like the the sense that i wanted to give does that great the story text of the inhabitant of carcosa where he says, tell me, where's the way to Carcosa? And you tell him he is there. No, no! You know, this sort of like, you've got to be mad to be there sort of sort of thing that's, yeah. I love that's... all of the story text in it. It's, it's fantastic. Well, actually, I, I was I was just going to mention it briefly. I think one of the mm. things that sticks in my mind about the scenario is the, is the wait what moment from that first time I played it. You you flip over these cards and you start to read it. And then you're like, hang on, no, this doesn't make sense. And you flip it back. He's, oh, no, no, this is the right card. Because uh, it, it, it places you back in situations you've already experienced without any explanation. It's just, yeah, this thing is happening again. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I, I really like those. I, I had a lot of fun writing those because I, I got to just write, you know, like for, like I mostly copied the text from the previous act word for word but then you know would twist some stuff at the end like i particularly like the one where uh you're back in the asylum and nurse heather's there and you have to get the key and one of the options is like wait this can't be real yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. test willpower to realize you've done this before <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it's it's that echo of of the sort of past i think what's impressive is that you've you can <laughs> good peter yeah it's that you've drawn you've managed to identify well, I can make this into a question. How did you manage to identify the bits which were the memorable moments from the campaign and choose those to be the story text? Um, honestly, I think it was entirely a matter of personal preference and trying to figure out moments that I I thought personally would be cool to to like to rediscover in a different context. Um, so like the the nurse Heather one I thought was cool because I could have four different options that all were you know weird, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I thought that was cool. I, I also thought that that was one of the more memorable, like, agenda, f- or acts. Is it an act or an agenda? Uh, act. act. It's one of the more memorable act flips. Yes. Because there's definitely. there's a load of text, and it's a really important decision that you're making at, in that moment. And then, like, Diane Devine was another one where, early on in the version of that scenario, like, I knew that, that that's when that monster spawns all the time. Mm-hmm. So I was coming up with flavor text to introduce the monster. And at first it was kind of more basic, like, yeah, the monster shows up and it's scary. But I thought it would be even scarier if it was also a callback to a previous scenario. And that was when I kind of, it hit me that Diane Devine was the sixth VIP in The Last King. And Dim Carcosa is the only scenario that doesn't have a VIP. So now it does. The VIP is Diane and Diane was that thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it all a it all lovely bit of sort of synchronicity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then I, th- I think the other 
the other one is uh, when you're back in the theater and uh, you see the stranger duck into a, you know, a corridor. And I think that one I chose just as a callback to the original scenario. Like I wanted one mm. callback to the, to the theater. Yes. Yeah. And I think th- there's the sense that some of the story text is the play as well. Right. You know, yeah. You yeah. hear people delivering lines, you see things that have been flavor text being delivered as story text. So curtain call was was definitely on my mind as i played that scenario as i said already. yeah it you almost kind of wonder if the entirety of dim carcosa isn't just the investigators jumping on the stage and being like rawr, rawr, acting out this this uh these events and everyone in the audience being like what are they doing <laughs> yeah well and particularly in the doubt route where you have hasta floating kind of everywhere mm. And right. you're really, you feel like you're pu- you're a puppet because you're like, I need to find a location that can get a clue that can hurt him. So you're sort of running around frantically. You lose track of whether you're doing it or you're being made to do it. It's, yeah, it's really disorienting. I mean, the other thing is that every single word on all of the cards is, is like a potential thorn as well. If it's, if it's Hasco, <laughs> yes. you read it out. So, so, so I, I found when I was reading things, I was, all, I was always really unsure of myself, making sure every word I said was right. <laughs> being very, being very careful. <laughs> yeah. And it, 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 the That's first, funny. the first time we played it, it, I was, I was in the pub with my friends at the, the LCG night. And if they got distracted at any point, I'd have to be, I'd, I'd, I'd be like, shut up, listen to me again. And then if they got distracted again, like, shut up, and then Hasta, and oh no, I've done it. <laughs> just because they distracted me, I was far more likely to say Hasta. Nice. <laughs> Claims another of his victims. Yeah. Damn him. We need like a Haster counter. <laughs> yeah. On the bottom yeah. of the screen or something. <laughs> so I, we've got to Dim Carcosa. I think it was a phenomenal campaign. I think it's delivered so well on what we were hoping for from this sort of really personal take and i've not heard of anyone who's not had a a wild ride so yeah congratulations it's just it's been fantastic thank you thank you so much i i'm really happy with how this cycle turned out it's been a it's been a lovely again we said we wouldn't do this but i think it's been a lovely contrast to dunwich Mm -hmm. which which feels yeah as we said that feels very classic arkham files this feels very it feels very hasta i think you've you've done the source material great justice and And I, I like you. one of the feelings that sticks with me is that it's it's like the plasticity of the earlier parts of the narrative. It's very hard to do that in a game where you have multiple interpretations of stuff that happens earlier. Because I can make a choice later on, which then casts everything I've already done in a different light. Mm. But I think it's, this this has managed to nail that. So yeah, thank you so much for for taking this along this journey with us with you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, and my hope is uh, that that contrast is something that carries forward in every cycle, because I, I really like the idea that uh, that when you start a cycle, it, it kind of establishes a tone, a new tone, you know? Should we maybe talk a little bit about The Forgotten Age then? Yeah, we, we can talk a little bit about it as long as it's not, you know, well, go ahead and ask whatever questions you have and I'll let you know <laughs> if I can answer them or not. But yeah, we can definitely talk about it. Well, I, the, the first one, so, I mean, yeah, you said it'll be a contrast in tone to the previous ones mm-hmm. what's what's some good if someone wants to get into the mood for the forgotten age what is it they should read or watch what's what have you got on your mood board for that tone so uh the forgotten age is it's it, it's meant to be more of an adventure so it's kind of like it's it's horror but it's also pulp horror um more so probably than any of the previous uh campaigns so i would look to any source where 
there's, you know, characters going on an adventure and there's going to be peril and danger along the way and scary stuff too, but there's also going to be wonder and amazement and discovery, you know? Okay. I mean, even, even the box art has the kind of wonder of seeing that hidden temple through the jungle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I'm trying to think of... Of course, now I'm drawing a blank as far as um, <laughs> good good references. I mean, as far as Lovecraft references, there are all manner of, of Lovecraftian tales about discovering, like, ancient ruins and cities. Like, the Nameless uh, the nameless City, the, the Mound is a good reference. Um, the Shadow of Time is a good reference. Basically, any tale where there's like a lost civilization or something that you're rediscovering. Um, that's going to be something that will fit into the tone and the themes of this cycle. Great. That sounds, that sounds really exciting. I, I hope so. I hope players are really excited for it. I'm, I'm super excited for it. It's a, it's a much more exotic uh, locale that players will be visiting. And uh, I did a lot of research into into the... I did probably more research into the establishment of the story for this cycle than any other. So I hope players really enjoy it. It was definitely one I was surprised to learn the term because a lot of people have been speculating. I, there's the four cults uh, encounter sets in the in the core <laughs> set, so everyone right. was saying, "Oh well, you know, we've had um, we've had Yogg-Sothoth, we've had Haster, so it's got to either be Shubnigarath or Cthulhu decks. That's definitely what it's going to be." <laughs> right? Yeah, and and my my gut reaction as a developer, anytime I hear, uh, "Well, it's got to be one of these two. <laughs> my my gut is almost always to not do either, you know. <laughs> yeah. Until we start saying, well, there's no chance Matt will do that because he never does what I, what's expected, and suddenly <laughs> he does the expected. <laughs> there was there was one person on uh, I don't know if it was Board Game Geek or uh, Fantasy Flight forums or Reddit. There was one person online that I that I read that predicted it like really accurately before it came out like oh i really hope not predicted it but like i I really hope that we do you know i hope we go to like the jungles of mexico like that'd be really cool <laughs> and it's like well <laughs> here you go <laughs> that, that that one poster is feeling feeling very vindicated somewhere <laughs> yeah right there, there was someone on twitter too that mentioned uh like oh here's your next setting for the uh the 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 arkham horror the card game uh and it's like a link to the parisian catacombs and that was like long after that scenario had been uh, had like gone into development, but before it had been announced. Wow. So I'm I, for like a year, I was sitting there thinking like, "Yup." <laughs> I mean, the other thing as well is that we've had two campaigns now where we've known what the sort of the ancient one behind the campaign is and what we can expect at the end. But there's no reason why a campaign has to be tied to a single ancient one, right? Yeah, and follow that as a as a chart right and right. sort of yig potentially could be the boss after scenario four and then there could be something else for the second half we we don't know yeah i i originally pitched um each campaign as arkham as feeling like a single like each campaign of arkham is like a single session of arkham horror or eldritch horror where you yeah. or like not even maybe a single session but like a single like uh the 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 basic gameplay loop of arkham horror or eldritch horror is discover clues enter gate to close gate fight ancient one if if it wakes up so kind of like if you took that and then like boiled it down and got a bit grittier and like got into the the individual encounters within that story that's like one campaign of arkham horror the card game 
but yeah, like you said, there's nothing that says that a, there's nothing that says that we have to end every campaign in like an alternate universe. B there's, there's nothing that says that we have to fight an ancient one in the, in the, in the last scenario. Like all of that is stuff that can be played with and, uh, and, you know, tinkered with. Great. To, to, I think to the player's excitement, you know, knowing that there's no holds barred kind of thing. Yeah, so just just a final question, Matt. Um, we yeah. didn't ask this after the after Dunwich, but I'm going to ask it every time we we talk to you going forward in a similar situation. <laughs> so, fine clothes, I think, was a bit of a that that came out towards the end of the last cycle, and people were saying, "Well, what do I do with this? It doesn't mm. fit in anywhere." And it actually ended up being a great little sleeper hit for the beginning of the uh, the Path to Carcosa cycle. So, are there any cards that you think might be uh, you, you want in your backpack, appreciating that backpack <laughs> is now a card, <laughs> uh, going into the box set for the Forgotten Age. Is there, is there something that, you know, any hint, little hints you can build, you can give us for building our decks? Sure, yeah. So I, I won't give a specific card because I feel like if I did, then anyone listening Everyone's would like, gonna put it in. just like de facto include that card into their first <laughs> you deck. You could mess with us so um, well, though. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Around, I could just be like... Yeah. <laughs> the, the smoking I could just name... <laughs> Yeah, everyone should be running knife. <laughs> no, uh, but but there are definitely some themes, um, just like there were some themes in the Carcosa cycle that kind of like played a part, you know, throughout all of the scenarios. There are some overarching themes in the Forgotten Age, and I think a lot of players have already sort of discovered them in looking at the preview articles and kind of looking at the the themes of like what's going on. And we we did an article just the other day about the dangers that you might find in the jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, so like one of those themes is that uh, evasion is going to be important in the cycle one way or the other. Not not necessarily meaning like, oh, you're going to want to go into the cycle with a five agility character or something like that. More so that evasion is going to be just like how intellect uh, and investigation was a more prominent thing that was played with with cards in the Carcosa cycle. Evasion is going to be and agility is going to be something that is played with in this cycle, you know, to, to the benefit or detriment of evasion heavy characters right okay yeah so you have like the vengeance keyword of enemies that you know are not that hard to kill but if you kill them it's maybe bad for you for some reason (laughs) um (laughs) and then uh the alert keyword is a new thing in the cycle and then of course a lot of player cards will deal with that theme too and the other one being this is a cycle about discovery and exploration and we've already seen that there's this explore mechanic with the map is going to like open up gradually over time. Um, so movement is another big important theme in this cycle. And we've already included some early seeds that of like cards that, you know, combo really well with Ursula and are going to be really important in this cycle about movement. Okay. Great. Yeah. So like, for example, I, I'll just say, I'll leave this one here. I'll leave this one here for you guys. You're going out in the field, aren't you? In this one. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I can do this. I can work this one out. Is it? Is it? Yeah. Is yeah. It, but yeah. will we see movement spread to, to all of the factions in some way? Because I, it's felt like it's been a seeker survivory kind of thing. Um, it's, are you able to say? Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to say one way or the other, but I mean, okay. I'll just say that the 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 overarching themes of each class is still going to remain the same. I, I'm not going to. Mm. They're not going to bleed too much one way or the other. And I personally feel like any class can take any effect as long as it still feels like it's that class. Like, 
there could be a guardian movement card as long as it still feels like a guardian card in some way right it's Hmm. doing some other thing that guardians are good at like maybe it's moving well now i'm actually thinking of cool card ideas (laughs) yeah if if the art for this card had the guardian like pushing someone else out of the way (laughs) right right yeah yeah. they're like dive yeah it'd be called like move out my way idiot (laughs) (laughs) oh i I, would never say that I'm coming for you. Yeah, that'd be great if you could move towards other teammates with a with a guardian yeah, moving oh, card. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Who so knows? well, well the, the reverse <laughs> of um, uh, elusive, isn't it? So rather than <laughs> yeah, yeah. moving away from an enemy, you move towards an enemy and engage. Yeah, it. we'll call it uh, <laughs> ob- obtrusive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really noisy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so it, it it almost sounds like if I'm building a team, if I'm building my ideal ideal team to go into uh, this campaign, there's there's maybe even a slot on my team for an evader so i could have a fighter an evader a cluer and a, and a healer say yeah possibly uh I, I think there's a lot of different teams that you could bring on uh, any potential campaign but it's definitely something that uh will be useful in this campaign yeah fantastic, fantastic. well have you got any closing thoughts for our listeners matt just uh thank you all so much for for supporting this game it's been really like quite an honor to to work on it and go on this journey with with you all and i'm really excited for the future of the game we've got a lot (laughs) we've got a lot in the pipeline i've been working really hard so um just yeah be excited (laughs) well matt thank you back from us because obviously you know we delight in this game and (laughs) it wouldn't happen without you doing it so yeah we're really grateful for you to take the time to talk to us and make such a brilliant game thank you thank you so much and thank you for having me on the show too You're very welcome. Yeah, thank you for spending the time. (laughs) So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us. We're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook. We're drawn to the flame. And we're on Twitter, drawn to the flame. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, I'm United everywhere. So that's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on the the Arkham Horror subreddit, uh, running the card of the day thread when I've got a chance for some stuff coming up recently. I'm on the Discord there as well, and I'm on Twitter, all with the same username. How about you, Frank? I'm FB on Twitter, that's E-P-H underscore B-E-E, and I'm around the places, Zooey Glass or Zozo. And Matt, if people want to get in touch with you, the, the best thing to do is to use the rules query email? Yeah, there's well, if you have a rules question, for sure. If you just want to contact me through some other means... Uh, you can, let's see, you can email me. My work email is mnewman at fantasyflightgames.com. Or if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm uh, at Natsuno Yoru, which is N-A-T-S-U-N-O-Y-O-R-U. So, yeah. And uh, and Phoenix on most other things, BoardGameGeek, PlayStation, etc. <laughs> so you control Matt on PlayStation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, more like you can you can hop in and watch me you know, die to a devil Joe or something. (laughs) So fantastic. Well, thank you very much listener for listening. And thank you very much again, Matt. Thank you. Thanks everyone. (laughs) I'm just going to let a bus go by. Just all coming by at this moment. This always happens when I start to talk. Suddenly there's like a convoy of... There's a food delivery as well. That must be a nightmare to edit out.
it's actually as long as I don't try and say anything important, it's really easy to job. <laughs> it's just, it's, but it's easier to <laughs> not talk than to. That's why you never say to... anything important. <laughs> Burn. Wow. <laughs> It's great doing this interview, just me and you, Matt. I don't know if you can hear a weird voice on the line that I'll be editing out. 